0: Chapter Thirty of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty. After well considering the matter, while I was dressing at the Blue Boar in the morning, I resolved to tell my guardian that I doubted Orlick's being the right sort of man to fill a post of trust at Miss Havisham's. Why, of course he is not the right sort of man, Pip," said my guardian, comfortably satisfied beforehand on the general head, "'because the man who fills the post of trust never is the right sort of man.' It seemed quite to put him into spirits, to find that this particular post was not exceptionally held by the right sort of man, and he listened in a satisfied manner, while I told him what knowledge I had of Orlick. "'Very good, Pip,' he observed, when I had concluded. "'I'll go round presently and pay our friend off.' Rather alarmed by this summary action, I was for a little delay, and even hinted that our friend himself might be difficult to deal with. "'Oh, no, he won't,' said my guardian, making his pocket-handkerchief point with perfect confidence. "'I should like to see him argue the question with me.' As we were going back to London together by the midday coach, and as I breakfasted under such terrors of Pumblechook that I could scarcely hold my cup, this gave me an opportunity of saying that I wanted a walk, and that I would go on along the London road, while Mr. Jaggers was occupied, if he would let the coachman know that I would get into my place when overtaken. I was thus enabled to fly from the blue boar immediately after breakfast. By then making a loop of about a couple of miles into the open country at the back of Pumblechook's premises, I got round into the high street again, a little beyond that pitfall, and felt myself in comparative security. It was interesting to be in the quiet old town once more, and it was not disagreeable to be here and there suddenly recognized and stared after. One or two of the tradespeople even darted out of their shops, and went a little way down the street before me, that they might turn as if they had forgotten something, and passed me face to face. On which occasions I don't know whether they or I made the worst pretense—they of not doing it, or I of not seeing it. Still, my position was a distinguished one, and I was not at all dissatisfied with it, until fate threw me in the way of that unlimited miscreant, Trabb's Boy. Casting my eyes along the street at a certain point of my progress, I beheld Trabb's boy approaching, lashing himself with an empty blue bag. Deeming that a serene and unconscious contemplation of him would best beseem me, and would be most likely to quell his evil mind, I advanced with that expression of countenance, and was rather congratulating myself on my success, when suddenly the knees of Trabb's boy smote together, his hair uprose, his cap fell off, he trembled violently in every limb, staggered out into the road, and crying to the populace, "'Hold me! I am so frightened!' feigned to be in a paroxysm of terror and contrition, occasioned by the dignity of my appearance. As I passed him, his teeth loudly chattered in his head, and with every mark of extreme humiliation, he prostrated himself in the dust. This was a hard thing to bear, but this was nothing. I had not advanced another two hundred yards, when, to my inexpressible terror, amazement, and indignation, I again beheld Trabb's boy approaching. He was coming around a narrow corner. His blue bag was slung over his shoulder. Honest industry beamed in his eyes. A determination to proceed to Trabb's, with cheerful briskness, was indicated in his gait. With a shock he became aware of me, and was severely visited as before but this time his motion was rotatory, and he staggered round and round me with knees more afflicted and with uplifted hands as if beseeching for mercy. His sufferings were hailed with the greatest joy by a knot of spectators, and I felt utterly confounded. I had not got as much further down the street as the post-office, when I again beheld Trabb's boy shooting round by a back way. This time he was entirely changed. He wore the blue bag, in the manner of my great coat, and was strutting along the pavement towards me on the opposite side of the street, attended by a company of delighted young friends, to whom he from time to time exclaimed, with a wave of his hand, "'Don't know yer." Words cannot state the amount of aggravation and injury wreaked upon me by boy, when, passing abreast of me, he pulled up his shirt-collar, twined his side-hair, second arm akimbo, and smirked extravagantly by, wriggling his elbows and body, and drawling to his attendants, "'Don't know yer don't know yer pon my soul, don't know yer. The disgrace attended on his immediately afterwards, taking to crowing, and pursuing me across the bridge with crows, as if from an exceedingly dejected fowl who had known me when I was a blacksmith, culminated the disgrace with which I left the town, and was, so to speak, ejected by it into the open country. But unless I had taken the life of Trabb's boy on that occasion, I really do not even now see what I could have done save endure. To have struggled with him in the street, or to have exacted any lower recompense from him than his heart's best blood, would have been futile and degrading. Moreover, he was a boy whom no man could hurt, an invulnerable and dodging serpent, who, when chased into a corner, flew out again between his captor's legs, scornfully yelping. I wrote, however, to Mr. Trabb by next day's post, to say that Mr. Pip must decline to deal further with one who could so far forget what he owed to the best interests of society as to employ a boy who excited loathing in every respectable mind. The coach, with Mr. Jaggers inside, came up in due time, and I took my box-seat again, and arrived in London safe but not sound, for my heart was gone. As soon as I arrived, I sent a penitential codfish and barrel of oysters to Joe, as reparation for not having gone myself, and then went on to Barnard's Inn. I found Herbert, dining on cold meat, and delighted to welcome me back. Having dispatched the Avenger to the coffee-house for an addition to the dinner, I felt that I must open my breast that very evening to my friend and chum. As confidence was out of the question with the avenger in the hall, which could merely be regarded in the light of an antechamber to the keyhole, I sent him to the play. A better proof of the severity of my bondage to that taskmaster could scarcely be afforded than the degrading shifts to which I was constantly driven to find him employment. So mean is extremity that I sometimes sent him to Hyde Park Corner to see what o'clock it was. Dinner done, and we sitting with our feet upon the fender. I said to Herbert, "'My dear Herbert, I have something very particular to tell you.' "'My dear Handel,' he returned, "'I shall esteem and respect your confidence. It concerns myself, Herbert,' said I, "'and one other person.' Herbert crossed his feet, looked at the fire with his head on one side, and, having looked at it in vain for some time, looked at me because I didn't go on. "'Herbert,' said I, laying my hand upon his knee, "'I I love—I adore—Estella.' Instead of being transfixed, Herbert replied, in an easy-matter-of-course way, "'Exactly—well—well, Herbert, is that all you say—well?' "'What next, I mean,' said Herbert, "'of course I know that.' "'How do you know it?' said i how do i know it handle why from you i never told you told me you never told me when you have your hair cut but i have had senses to perceive it you've always adored her ever since i've known you you brought your adoration and your portmanteau here together told me why you have always told me all day long When you told me your own story, you told me plainly that you began adoring her the first time you saw her, when you were very young indeed." "'Very well, then,' said I, to whom this was a new and not unwelcome light. "'I have never left off adoring her, and she has come back a most beautiful and most elegant creature, and I saw her yesterday, and if I adored her before, I now doubly adore her.' "'Lucky for you, then, Handel,' said Herbert that you are picked out for her, and allotted to her. Without encroaching on forbidden ground, we may venture to say that there can be no doubt between ourselves of that fact. Have you any idea yet of Vestello's views on the adoration question?" I shook my head gloomily. Oh! She is thousands of miles away from me," said I. Patience, my dear Handel, time enough, time enough. But you have something more to say. I am ashamed to say it," I returned, and yet it's no worse to say it than to think it. You call me a lucky fellow. Of course, I am. I was a blacksmith's boy, but yesterday I am—what shall I say I am—to-day? Say, a good fellow, if you want a phrase," returned Herbert, smiling and clapping his hand on the back of mine,—a good fellow, with impetuosity and hesitation boldness and diffidence, action and dreaming, curiously mixed in him. I stopped for a moment, to consider whether there really was this mixture in my character. On the whole, I by no means recognized the analysis, but thought it not worth disputing. When I ask what I am to call myself to-day, Herbert—I went on—I suggest what I have in my thoughts. You say I am lucky? I know I have done nothing to raise myself in life, and that fortune alone has raised me. That is being very lucky. And yet, when I think of Estella—' "'And when, don't you, you know?' Herbert threw in, with his eyes on the fire, which I thought kind and sympathetic of him. Then, my dear Herbert, I cannot tell you how dependent and uncertain I feel, and how exposed to hundreds of chances avoiding forbidden ground, as you did just now, I may still say that on the constancy of one person, naming no person, all my expectations depend, and at the best, how indefinite and unsatisfactory only to know so vaguely what they are. In saying this, I relieved my mind of what had always been there, more or less, though no doubt most since yesterday. Now, Handel! Herbert replied, in his gay, hopeful way, "'It seems to me that in the despondency of the tender passion we are looking into our gift-horse's mouth with a magnifying-glass. Likewise, it seems to me that, concentrating our attention on the examination, we altogether overlook one of the best points of the animal. Didn't you tell me that your guardian, Mr. Jackers, told you in the beginning that you were not endowed with expectations only?' "'And even if he had not told you so?' that is a very large if i grant could you believe that of all men in london mr jaggers is the man to hold his present relations towards you unless he were sure of his ground i said i could not deny that this was a strong point i said it people often do so in such cases like a rather reluctant concession to truth and justice as if i wanted to deny it i should think it was a strong point said herbert and I should think you would be puzzled to imagine a stronger. As to the rest, you must bide your guardian's time, and he must bide his client's time. You'll be one-and-twenty before you know where you are, and then, perhaps, you'll get some further enlightenment. At all events, you'll be nearer getting it, for it must come at last." "'What a hopeful disposition you have,' said I, gratefully admiring his cheery ways. "'I ought to have,' said Herbert for I have not much else. I must acknowledge, by the by, that the good sense of what I have just said is not my own, but my father's. The only remark I ever heard him make on your story was the final one. The thing is settled and done, or Mr. Jaggers would not be in it. And now, before I say anything more about my father, or my father's son, and repay confidence with confidence, I want to make myself seriously disagreeable to you for a moment. Positively repulsive. You won't succeed, said I. Oh, yes, I shall, said he. One, two, three, and now I'm in for it. Handle, my good fellow, though he spoke in this light tone, he was very much in earnest, I have been thinking since we have been talking with our feet on this fender, that Estella surely cannot be a condition of your inheritance, if she was never referred to by your guardian. Am I right in so understanding what you have told me, as that he never referred to her directly or indirectly in any way? Never even hinted, for instance, that your patron might have views as to your marriage, ultimately? Never. Now, Handel, I am quite free from the flavour of sour grapes upon my soul and honour. Not being bound to her— Can you not detach yourself from her? I told you I should be disagreeable." I turned my head aside, for, with a rush and a sweep, like the old marsh winds coming up from the sea, a feeling like that which had subdued me on the morning when I left the forge, when the mists were solemnly rising, and when I laid my hand upon the village finger-post, smote upon my heart again. There was silence between us for a little while. "'Yes, but, my dear Handel,' Herbert went on, as if we had been talking instead of silent, "'its having been so strongly rooted in the breast of a boy, whom nature and circumstances made so romantic, renders it very serious. Think of her bringing up, and think of Miss Havisham. Think of what she is herself. Now I am repulsive, and you abominate me. This may lead to miserable things.' "'I know it, Herbert.' said I, with my head still turned away, but I can't help it. You can't detach yourself? No. Impossible. You can't try, Handel? No. Impossible. Well," said Herbert, getting up with a lively shake, as if he had been asleep and stirring the fire, now I'll endeavor to make myself agreeable again. So he went round the room and shook the curtains out, put the chairs in their places tidied the books, and so forth, that were lying about, looked into the hall, peeped into the letter-box, shut the door, and came back to his chair by the fire, where he sat down, nursing his left leg in both arms. I was going to say a word or two, Handel, concerning my father and my father's son. I am afraid it is scarcely necessary for my father's son to remark that my father's establishment is not particularly brilliant in its housekeeping. "'There is always plenty, Herbert,' said I, to say something encouraging. "'Oh, yes. And so the dustman says, I believe, with the strongest approval, and so does the marine store-shop in the back street.' "'Gravely, Handel, for the subject is grave enough. You know how it is, as well as I do. I suppose there was a time once when my father had not given matters up, but if ever there was, the time is gone. May I ask you? If you have ever had an opportunity of remarking, down in your part of the country, that the children of not exactly suitable marriages are always most particularly anxious to be married." This was such a singular question, that I asked him in return. Is it so? I don't know," said Herbert. That's what I want to know, because it is decidedly the case with us. My poor sister Charlotte, who was next me and died before she was fourteen was a striking example. Little Jane is the same. In her desire to be matrimonial established, you might suppose her to have passed her short existence in the perpetual contemplation of domestic bliss. Little Alec, in a frock, has already made arrangements for his union with a suitable young person at Kew. And indeed, I think we are all engaged, except the baby." "'Then you are,' said I. "'I am,' said Herbert. "'But it's a secret. I assured him of my keeping the secret, and begged to be favoured with further particulars. He had spoken so sensibly and feelingly of my weakness that I wanted to know something about his strength. "'May I ask the name?' I said. "'Name of Clara,' said Herbert. "'Live in London?' "'Yes. Perhaps I ought to mention,' said Herbert, who had become curiously crestfallen and meek since we entered on the interesting theme. That she is rather below my mother's nonsensical family notions. Her father had to do with the victualling of passenger ships. I think he was a species of purser. What is he now? Said I. He is an invalid now. Replied Herbert. Living on, on the first floor. Said Herbert. It was not at all what I meant, for I had intended my question to apply to his means. I have never seen him for he has always kept his room overhead since I have known Clara, but I have heard him constantly. He makes tremendous rows, roars, and pegs at the floor with some frightful instrument. In looking at me, and then laughing heartily, Herbert, for the time, recovered his usual lively manner. "'Don't you expect to see him?' said I. "'Oh, yes. I constantly expect to see him,' returned Herbert, "'because I never hear him without expecting him to come tumbling through the ceiling. But I don't know how long the rafters may hold." When he had once more laughed heartily, he became meek again, and told me that the moment he began to realize capital, it was his intention to marry this young lady. He added, as a self-evident proposition, engendering low spirits, "'But you can't marry, you know, while you're looking about you.' As we contemplated the fire. And as I thought what a difficult vision to realize this same capital sometimes was, I put my hands in my pockets. A folded piece of paper in one of them, attracting my attention, I opened it, and found it to be the playbill I had received from Joe, relative to the celebrated provincial amateur of Roskin renown. "'And bless my heart,' I involuntarily added aloud, "'it's to-night!' This changed the subject in an instant and made us hurriedly resolve to go to the play. So when I had pledged myself to comfort and abet Herbert and the affair of his heart, by all practicable and impracticable means, and when Herbert had told me that his affianced already knew me by reputation, and that I should be presented to her, and when we had warmly shaken hands upon our mutual confidence, we blew out our candles, made up our fire, locked our door and issued forth in quest of Mr. Wopsle, and Denmark. End of chapter thirty Chapter thirty-one of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter thirty-one on our arrival in Denmark, we found the king and queen of that country, elevated in two armchairs and a kitchen table, holding a court. The whole of the Danish nobility were in attendance, consisting of a noble boy in the wash-leather boots of a gigantic ancestor, a venerable peer with a dirty face, who seemed to have risen from the people late in life, and the Danish chivalry with a comb in its hair and a pair of white silk legs and presenting, on the whole, a feminine appearance. My gifted townsman stood gloomily apart, with folded arms, and I could have wished that his curls and forehead had been more probable. Several curious little circumstances transpired as the action proceeded. The late King of the country not only appeared to have been troubled with a cough at the time of his decease, but to have taken it with him to the tomb, and to have brought it back. The royal phantom also carried a ghostly manuscript round its truncheon, to which it had the appearance of occasionally referring, and that, too, with an air of anxiety, and a tendency to lose the place of reference which were suggestive of a state of mortality. It was this, I conceive, which led to the Shades being advised by the gallery to— TURN OVER!—a recommendation which it took extremely ill. It was likewise to be noted of this majestic spirit, that whereas it always appeared with an air of having been out a long time, and walked an immense distance, it perceptibly came from a closely contiguous wall. This occasioned its terrors to be received derisively. The Queen of Denmark, a very buxom lady, though no doubt historically brazen, was considered by the public to have too much brass about her, her chin being attached to her diadem by a broad band of that metal, as if she had a gorgeous toothache, her waist being encircled by another, and each of her arms by another, so that she was openly mentioned as the kettle-drum. The noble boy in the ancestral boots was inconsistent, representing himself, as it were in one breath, as an able seaman, a strolling actor, a grave-digger, a clergyman, and a person of the utmost importance at a court fencing match on the authority of whose practised eye and nice discrimination the finest strokes were judged. This gradually led to a want of toleration for him, and even on his being detected in holy orders, and declining to perform the funeral service, to the general indignation taking the form of nuts. Lastly, Ophelia was a prey to such slow musical madness, that when in course of time she had taken off her white muslin scarf, folded it up, and buried it, A sulky man, who had been long cooling his impatient nose against an iron bar in the front row of the gallery, growled, "'Now the baby's put to bed! Let's have supper!' Which, to say the least of it, was out of keeping. Upon my unfortunate townsman, all these incidents accumulated with playful effect. Whenever that undecided prince had to ask a question, or state a doubt, the public helped him out with it. As, for example, on the question whether nobler in the mind to suffer," some roared yes, and some no, and some inclining to both opinions said, "'Toss up for it!' And quite a debating society arose. When he asked, what should such fellows as he do, crawling between earth and heaven, he was encouraged with loud cries of, here. hear!' When he appeared, with his stocking disordered, its disorder expressed, according to usage, by one very neat fold in the top, which I supposed to be always got up with a flat-iron, a conversation took place in the gallery respecting the paleness of his leg, and whether it was occasioned by the turn the ghost had given him. On his taking the recorders, very like a little black flute that had just been played in the orchestra, and handed out at the door, he was called upon unanimously for Rule Britannia. When he recommended the player, not to saw the air thus, the sulky man said, "'And don't you do it neither. You're a deal worse than him.' And I grieve to add, that peals of laughter greeted Mr. Wopsle on every one of these occasions. But his greatest trials were in the churchyard, which had the appearance of a primeval forest, with a kind of small ecclesiastical wash-house on one side, and a turnpike gate on the other. Mr. Wopsle, in a comprehensive black cloak, being descried entering at the turnpike, the grave-digger was admonished in a friendly way. Look out! Here's the undertaker coming to see how you're getting on with your work. I believe it is well known in a constitutional country that Mr. Wopsle could not possibly have returned the skull, after moralizing over it, without dusting his fingers on a white napkin taken from his breast. But even that innocent and indispensable action did not pass without the comment, "Waiter." The arrival of the body for interment, in an empty black box with the lid tumbling open, was a signal for a general joy which was much enhanced by the discovery, among the bearers, of an individual obnoxious to identification. The joy attended Mr. Wopsle through his struggle with Laertes on the brink of the orchestra and the grave, and slackened no more until he had tumbled the king off the kitchen-table, and had died by inches from the ankles upward. We had made some pale efforts in the beginning to applaud Mr. Wopsle, but they were too hopeless to be persisted in. Therefore we had sat, feeling keenly for him, but laughing, nevertheless, from ear to ear. I laughed in spite of myself all the time. The whole thing was so droll, And yet I had a latent impression that there was something decidedly fine in Mr. Wopsle's elocution. Not for old association's sake, I am afraid but because it was very slow, very dreary, very up-hill and down-hill, and very unlike any way in which any man, in any natural circumstances of life or death, ever expressed himself about anything. When the tragedy was over, and he had been called for and hooted, I said to Herbert, Let us go at once, or perhaps we shall meet him. We made all the haste we could downstairs, but we were not quick enough either. Standing at the door was a Jewish man, with an unnatural heavy smear of eyebrow, who caught my eyes as we advanced, and said, when we came up with him, "'Mr. Pip and Friend.' Identity of Mr. Pip and Friend confessed. "'Mr. Walden Garver,' said the man, "'would be glad to have the honor." "'Walden Garver,' I repeated, when Herbert murmured in my ear, "'probably Wopsle.' "'Oh!' said I, "'Yes. Shall we follow you?' "'A few steps, please.' When we were in a side-alley, he turned and asked, "'How did you think he looked? I dressed him.' "'I don't know what he had looked like, except a funeral, with the addition of a large Danish sun or star hanging round his neck by a blue ribbon, that had given him the appearance of being insured in some extraordinary fire-office. But I said he had looked very nice.' when he come to the grave said our conductor he showed his cloak beautiful but judging from the wing it looked to me that when he see the ghost in the queen's apartment he might have made more of his stockings i modestly assented and we all fell through a little dirty swing door into a sort of hot packing case immediately behind it here mr wopsle was divesting himself of his danish garments and here there was just room for us to look at him over one another's shoulders, by keeping the packing-case door, or lid, wide open. "'Gentlemen,' said Mr. Wopsle, "'I am proud to see you. I hope, Mr. Pip, you will excuse my sending round. I had the happiness to know you in former times, and the drama has ever had a claim which has ever been acknowledged on the noble and the affluent.' Meanwhile, Mr. Waldengarver, in a frightful perspiration, was trying to get himself out of his princely sables. "'Skin the stockings off, Mr. Waldengarver," said the owner of that property, "'or you bust them. Bust them, and you bust five-and-thirty shillings. Shakespeare never was complimented with a finer pair. Keep quiet in your chair now, and leave them to me.' With that, he went upon his knees and began to flay his victim, who, on the first stocking coming off, would certainly have fallen over backward with his chair, but for there being no room to fall anyhow. I had been afraid until then to say a word about the play. But then Mr. Waldengarver looked up at us complacently, and said, "'Gentlemen, how did it seem to you to to go in front?' Herbert said from behind, at the same time poking me, so I said, capitally. "'How did you like my reading of the character, gentlemen?' said Mr. Waldengarver, almost, if not quite, with patronage. Herbert said from behind, again poking me, "'Massive and concrete!' So I said boldly, as if I had originated it, and must beg to insist upon it, "'Massive and concrete!' "'I am glad to have your approbation, gentlemen,' said Mr. Waldengarver, with an air of dignity, in spite of his being ground against the wall at the time, and holding on by the seat of the chair. "'But I'll tell you one thing, Mr. Waldengarver," said the man who was on his knees, "'in which you're out in your reading. Now, mind, I don't care who says contrary. I tell you so. You're out in your reading of Hamlet.' when you get your legs in profile. The last hamlet, as I dressed, made the same mistake in his reading at rehearsal, till I got him to put a large red wafer on each of his shins, and then at rehearsal, which was the last, I went in front, sir, to the back of the pit, and whenever his reading brought him into profile, I called out, I don't see no wafers, and at night his reading was lovely. Mr. Garver smiled at me as much as to say, a faithful dependent, I overlook his folly," and then said aloud, "'My view is a little classic and thoughtful for them here, but they will improve, they will improve.' Herbert and I said together, "'Oh, no doubt they would improve.' "'Did you observe, gentlemen,' said Mr. Waldengarver, "'that there was a man in the gallery, who endeavoured to cast derision on the service—I mean, the representation?" We basely replied that we rather thought we had noticed such a man. I added,—'He was drunk, no doubt.' "'Oh, dear, no, sir,' said Mr. Wopsle,—'not drunk. His employer would see to that, sir. His employer would not allow him to be drunk.' "'You know his employer?' said I. Mr. Wopsle shut his eyes, and opened them again, performing both ceremonies very slowly. You must have observed, gentlemen, said he, an ignorant and a blatant ass, with a rasping throat, and a countenance expressive of low malignity, who went through, I will not say sustained, the role, if I may use a French expression, of Claudius, King of Denmark that is his employer, gentlemen. Such is the profession." Without distinctly knowing whether I should have been more sorry for Mr. Wopsle, if he had been in despair, I was so sorry for him as it was, that I took the opportunity of his turning round to have his braces put on, which jostled us out at the doorway, to ask Herbert what he thought of having him home to supper. Herbert said he thought it would be kind to do so. Therefore I invited him and he went to Barnard's with us, wrapped up to the eyes, and we did our best for him, and he sat until two o'clock in the morning, reviewing his success and developing his plans. I forget in detail what they were, but I have a general recollection that he was to begin with reviving the drama, and to end with crushing it, inasmuch as his decease would leave it utterly bereft and without a chance or hope. Miserably I went to bed after all. I miserably thought of Estella, and miserably dreamed that my expectations were all cancelled, and that I had to give my hand in marriage to Herbert's Clara, or play Hamlet to Miss Havisham's ghost, before twenty thousand people, without knowing twenty words of it. End of chapter 31 CHAPTER Thirty Two OF GREAT EXPECTATIONS This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, Chapter Thirty Two. One day, when I was busy with my books and Mr. Pocket, I received a note by the post, the mere outside of which threw me into a great flutter, for though I had never seen the handwriting in which it was addressed, I divined whose hand it was. It had no set beginning as, Dear Mr. Pip, or Dear Pip, or Dear Sir, or Dear Anything, but ran thus. "'I am to come to London the day after to-morrow, by the midday coach. I believe it was settled you should meet me. At all events, Miss Havisham has that impression, and I write in obedience to it. She sends you her regard. Yours, Estella.' If there had been time— I should probably have ordered several suits of clothes for this occasion, but there was not. I was fain to be content with those I had. My appetite vanished instantly, and I knew no peace or rest until the day arrived. Not that its arrival brought me either, for then I was worse than ever, and began haunting the coach-office in Wood Street, Cheapside, before the coach had left the blue boar in our town. For all that I knew, this perfectly well. I still felt as if it were not safe to let the coach-office be out of my sight longer than five minutes at a time, and in this condition of unreason I had performed a first half-hour of a watch of four or five hours, when Wemmick ran against me. "Hello, Mr. Pip,' said he. "'How do you do?' "'I should hardly have thought this was your beat.' I explained that I was waiting to meet somebody who was coming up by coach, and I inquired after the castle and the aged. Both flourishing, thank said Wemmick, and particularly the aged. He's in wonderful feather. He'll be eighty-two next birthday. I have a notion of firing eighty-two times, if the neighborhood shouldn't complain, and that cannon of mine should prove equal to the pressure. However, this is not London talk. Where do you think I'm going to?" "'To the office,' said I, for he was tending in that direction. Next thing to it returned Wemmick. I am going to Newgate. We are in a banker's parcel-case just at present, and I have been down the road, taking a squint at the scene of action, and thereupon must have a word or two with our client. Did your client commit the robbery? I asked. Bless your soul and body, no," answered Wemmick, very dryly, but he is accused of it, so might you or I be. Either of us might be accused of it, you know. Only neither of us is." I remarked. "'Yah,' said Wemmick, touching me on the breast with his forefinger. "'You're a deep one, Mr. Pip. Would you like to have a look at Newgate? Have you time to spare?' I had so much time to spare that the proposal came as a relief, notwithstanding its irreconcilability with my latent desire to keep my eye on the coach-office, muttering that I would make the inquiry whether I had time to walk with him. I went into the office, and ascertained from the clerk, with the nicest precision and much to the trying of his temper, the earliest moment at which the coach could be expected, which I knew beforehand quite as well as he. I then rejoined Mr. Wemmick, and, affecting to consult my watch, and to be surprised by the information I had received, accepted his offer. We were at Newgate in a few minutes, and we passed through the lodge, where some fetters were hanging up on the bare walls among the prison rules into the interior of the jail. At that time, jails are much neglected, and the period of exaggerated reaction, consequent on all public wrongdoing, and which is always its heaviest and longest punishment, was still far off. So felons were not lodged and fed better than soldiers, to say nothing of paupers, and seldom set fire to their prisons, with the excusable object of improving the flavor of their soup. It was visiting time when Wemmick took me in and a pot man was going his rounds with beer, and the prisoners, behind bars and yards, were buying beer, and talking to friends, and a frowsy, ugly, disorderly, depressing scene it was. It struck me that Wemmick walked among the prisoners, much as a gardener might walk among his plants. This was first put into my head by his seeing a shoot that had come up in the night, and saying, "'What? Captain Tom? Are you there?' "'Ah, indeed. And also, is that black bill behind the cistern? Why, I didn't look for you these two months. How do you find yourself?" Equally in his stopping at the bars and attending to anxious whisperers, always singly, Wemmick, with his post-office in an immovable state, looked at them while in conference, as if he were taking particular notice of the advance they had made, since last observed, towards coming out in full blow at their trial. He was highly popular and I found that he took the familiar department of Mr. Jaggers's business, though something of the state of Mr. Jaggers hung about him too, forbidding approach beyond certain limits. His personal recognition of each successive client was comprised in a nod, and in his settling his hat a little easier on his head with both hands, and then tightening the post-office, and putting his hands in his pockets. In one or two instances there was a difficulty respecting the raising of fees. And then Mr. Wemmick, backing as far as possible from the insufficient money he produced, said, It's no use, my boy. I'm only a subordinate. I can't take it. Don't go on in that way with a subordinate. If you are unable to make up your quantum, my boy, you had better address yourself to a principal. There are plenty of principals in the profession, you know, and what is not worth the while of one may be the worth while of another. That's my recommendation to you. Speaking as a subordinate, don't try on useless measures. Why should you? Now, who's next?" Thus we walked through Wemmick's greenhouse, until he turned to me and said, "'Notice the man I shall shake hands with.' I should have done so without the preparation, as he had shaken hands with no one yet. Almost as soon as he had spoken, a portly upright man, whom I can see now as I write, in a well-worn, olive-coloured frock-coat, with a peculiar pallor overspreading the red in his complexion, and eyes that went wandering about when he tried to fix them, came up to a corner of the bars, and put his hand to his hat, which had a greasy and fatty surface, like cold broth, with a half-serious and half-jocose military salute. "'Colonel, to you,' said Wemmick. "'How are you, Colonel?' "'All right, Mr. Wemmick.' "'Everything was done, it could be done. But the evidence was too strong for us, Colonel.' Yes, it was too strong, sir, but I don't care." "'Oh, no,' said Wemmick coolly, "'you don't care.' Then turning to me, "'Served His Majesty, this man. Was a soldier in the line, and bought his discharge.' I said, "'Indeed?' And the man's eyes looked at me, and then looked over my head, and then looked all around me, and then he drew his hand across his lips, and laughed. I think I shall be out of this on Monday, sir." He said to Wemmick, "'Perhaps,' returned my friend, "'what there's no knowing.' "'I am glad to have the chance of bidding you good-bye, Mr. Wemmick,' said the man, stretching out his hand between two bars. "'Thank said Wemmick, shaking hands with him, "'same to you, Colonel.' "'If what I had upon me, when taken, had been real, Mr. Wemmick,' said the man, unwilling to let his hand go, I should have asked the favor of your wearing another ring, in acknowledgment of your attentions. "'I'll accept the will for the deed,' said Wemmick. "'By the by, you were quite a pigeon fancier.' The man looked up at the sky. "'I'm told you had a remarkable breed of tumblers. Could you commission any friend of yours to bring me a pair, uh, if you've no further use for them?' "'It shall be done, sir.' "'All right,' said Wemmick. I shall be taken care of. Good afternoon, Colonel. Good-bye. They shook hands again, and as we walked away, Wemmick said to me, A coiner, a very good workman. The recorder's report is made to-day, and he's sure to be executed on Monday. Still, you see, as far as it goes, a pair of pigeons are portable property all the same. With that, he looked back and nodded at this dead plant and then cast his eyes about him in walking out of the yard, as if he were considering what other pot would go best in its place. As we came out of the prison through the lodge, I found that the great importance of my guardian was appreciated by the turnkeys, no less than by those whom they held in charge. "'Well, Mr. Wemmick,' said the turnkey, who kept us between the two studded and spiked lodge-gates, and who carefully locked one before he unlocked the other. What's Mr. Jagger's going to do with that water-side murder? Is he going to make it manslaughter, or what's he going to make of it?" "'Why don't you ask him?' returned ramick, "'Oh, yes, I dare say,' said the turnkey. "'Now, that's the way with them here, Mr. Pip,' remarked Ramek, turning to me with his post-office elongated. They don't mind what they ask of me, the subordinate, but you never catch em asking any questions of my principal." "'Is this young gentleman one of the prentices, or uh, articled ones, of your office?' asked the turnkey, with a grin at Mr. Wemmick's humour. "'There he goes again, you see,' cried Wemmick. "'I told you so. Asked another question of the subordinate, before his first is dry. Well supposing Mr. Pip is one of them." "'Why, then,' said the turnkey, grinning again, "'he knows what Mr. Jaggers is.' "'Yah!' cried Mr. Wemmick, suddenly hitting out at the turnkey in a facetious way. "'You're dumb as one of your own keys, and you have to do with my principle. You know you are. Let us out, you old fox, or I get him to bring an action against you for false imprisonment.' The turnkey laughed and gave us a good day, and stood laughing at us over the spikes of the wicket when we descended the steps into the street. "'Mind you, Mr. Pip,' said Wemmick, gravely in my ear, as he took my arm to be more confidential, "'I don't know that Mr. Jaggers does a better thing than the way in which he keeps himself so high. He's always so high. His constant height is of a piece with his immense abilities. That Colonel durst no more take leave of him and that turnkey durst ask him his intentions respecting a the case. Then between his eye and them he slips in his subordinate, don't you see? And so he has him—soul and body." I was very much impressed, and not for the first time, by my guardian's subtlety. To confess the truth, I very heartily wished, and not for the first time, that I had had some other guardian of minor abilities. Mr. Wemmick and I— parted at the office in Little Britain, where suppliants for Mr. Jaggers's notice were lingering about as usual, and I returned to my watch in the street of the coach-office with some three hours on hand. I consumed the whole time in thinking how strange it was that I should be encompassed by all this taint of prison and crime, that in my childhood, out in our lonely marshes on a winter evening, I should have first encountered it, that it should have reappeared on two occasions starting out like a stain that was faded but not gone that it should in this new way pervade my fortune and advancement while my mind was thus engaged i thought of the beautiful young estella proud and refined coming towards me and i thought with absolute abhorrence of the contrast between the jail and her i wished that wemmick had not met me or that i had not yielded to him and gone with him so that of all days in the year on this day I might not have had Newgate in my breath and on my clothes. I beat the prison dust off my feet as I sauntered to and fro, and I shook it out of my dress, and I exhaled its air from my lungs. So contaminated did I feel, remembering who was coming, that the coach came quickly after all, and I was not yet free from the soiling consciousness of Mr. Wemmick's conservatory, when I saw her face at the coach-window, and her hand waving to me. What was the nameless shadow? which again, in that one instant, had passed? End of chapter thirty-two Chapter thirty-three of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter thirty-three In her furred traveling dress, Estella seemed more delicately beautiful than she had ever seemed yet, even in my eyes. Her manner was more winning than she had cared to let it be to me before, and I thought I saw Miss Havisham's influence in the change. We stood in the inn-yard while she pointed out her luggage to me, and when it was all collected I remembered, having forgotten everything but herself in the meanwhile, that I knew nothing of her destination. "'I am going to Richmond,' she told me. "'Our lesson is that there are two Richmonds, "'one in Surrey and one in Yorkshire, "'and that mine is the Surrey Richmond. "'The distance is ten miles. "'I am to have a carriage, and you are to take me. "'This is my purse, and you are to pay my charges out of it. "'Oh, you must take the purse. "'We have no choice, you and I, but to obey our instructions.' "'We are not free to follow our own devices, you and I.' "'As she looked at me, in giving me the purse, "'I hoped there was an inner meaning in her words. "'She said them slightingly, but not with displeasure. "'Her carriage will have to be sent for, Estella. "'Will you rest here a little?' "'Yes, I am to rest here a little, "'and I am to drink some tea, "'and you are to take care of me the while.' "'She drew her arm through mine, as if it must be done.' and I requested a waiter, who had been staring at the coach, like a man who had never seen such a thing in his life, to show us a private sitting-room. Upon that, he pulled out a napkin, as if it were a magic clue, without which he couldn't find the way upstairs, and led us to the black hole of the establishment, fitted up with a diminishing mirror, quite a superfluous article considering the hole's proportions, an anchovy sauce cruet, and somebody's patterns. On my objecting to this retreat, he took us into another room, with a dinner-table for thirty, and in the grate a scorched leaf of a copy-book under a bushel of coal-dust. Having looked at this extinct conflagration, and shaken his head, he took my order, which, proving to be merely, "'Some tea for the lady,' sent him out of the room in a very low state of mind. I was, and I am, sensible that the air of this chamber in its strong combination of stable with soup-stock, might have led one to infer that the coaching department was not doing well, and that the enterprising proprietor was boiling down the horses for the refreshment department. Yet the room was all in all to me, Estella being in it. I thought that with her I could have been happy there for life. I was not at all happy there at the time, observe, and I knew it well. "'Where are you going to, uh, to Richmond?' I asked Estella. "'I am going to live,' said she, "'at a great expense, with a lady there, who has the power—or says she has—of taking me about, and introducing me, and showing people to me, and showing me to people.' "'I suppose you will be glad of variety and admiration?' "'Yes, I suppose so.' She answered so carelessly that I said, "'You speak of yourself as if you were someone else.' "'Where did you learn how I speak of others?' "'Come, come,' said Estella, smiling delightfully. "'You must not expect me to go to school to you. I must talk in my own way. How do you thrive with Mr. Pocket?' "'I live quite pleasantly there. At least it appeared to me that I was losing a chance.' "'At least?' repeated Estella. "'As pleasantly as I could anywhere, away from you.' "'You silly boy!' "'said Estella, quite composedly. "'How can you talk such nonsense? "'Your friend Mr. Matthew, I believe, "'is superior to the rest of his family?' "'Very superior, indeed. "'He is nobody's enemy.' "'Don't add but his own,' interposed Estella, "'for I hate that class of man. "'But he really is disinterested, "'and above small jealousy and spite, I have heard.' "'I am sure I have every reason to say so.' "'You have not every reason to say so of the rest of his people,' said Estella, nodding at me with an expression of face that was at once grave and rallying, for they beset Miss Havisham with reports and insinuations to your disadvantage. They watch you, misrepresent you, write letters about you, anonymous sometimes, and you are the torment and the occupation of their lives. You can scarcely realise to yourself the hatred those people feel for you. They do me no harm, I hope." Instead of answering, Estella burst out laughing. This was very singular to me, and I looked at her in considerable perplexity. When she left off, and she had not laughed languidly, but with real enjoyment, I said in my diffident way with her, "'I hope I may suppose that you would not be amused if they did me any harm.' "'No, no, you may be sure of that,' said Estella. You may be certain that I laugh, because they fail. Oh, those people with Miss Havisham, and the tortures they undergo! She laughed again, and even now, when she had told me why, her laughter was very singular to me, for I could not doubt its being genuine, and yet it seemed too much for the occasion. I thought there must really be something more here than I knew. She saw the thought in my mind, and answered it. "'It is not easy for even you,' said Estella, "'to know what satisfaction it gives me, to see those people thwarted, or what an unjoyable sense of the ridiculous I have, when they are made ridiculous. For you were not brought up in that strange house from a mere baby. I was. You had not your little wits sharpened by their intriguing against you, suppressed and defenceless, under the mask of sympathy and pity and what not.' That is soft and soothing. I had. You did not gradually open your round childish eyes, wider and wider, to the discovery of that impostor of a woman, who calculates her stores of peace of mind for when she wakes up in the night. I did." It was no laughing matter with Estella now. Nor was she summoning these remembrances from any shallow place. I would not have been the cause of that look of hers, for all my expectations in a heap. Two things I can tell you, said Estella. First, notwithstanding the proverb that constant dripping will wear away a stone, you may set your mind at rest that these people never will, never would, in a hundred years, impair your ground with Miss Havisham in any particular, great or small. Second, I am beholden to you as the cause of their being so busy and so mean and vain. And there is my hand upon it and she gave it me playfully, for her darker mood had been but momentary. I held it, and put it to my lips. "'You ridiculous boy,' said Estella. "'Will you never take warning? Or do you kiss my hand on the same spirit in which I once let you kiss my cheek?' "'What spirit was that?' said I. "'I must think a moment. A spirit of contempt for the fawners and plotters.' "'If I say yes, may I kiss the cheek again?' "'You should have asked before you touched the hand. "'But yes, if you like.' "'I leaned down, and her calm face was like a statue's. "'Now,' said Estella, gliding away the instant I touched her cheek, "'you are to take care that I have some tea, "'and you are to take me to Richmond.' "'Her reverting to this tone as if our association were forced upon us,' and we were mere puppets, gave me pain. But everything in our intercourse did give me pain. Whatever her tone with me happened to be, I could put no trust in it, and build no hope on it. And yet I went on against trust and against hope. Why, I repeated a thousand times? So it always was. I rang for the tea, and the waiter, reappearing with his magic clue, brought in by degrees Some fifty adjuncts to that refreshment, but of tea, not a glimpse. A tea-board, cups and saucers, plates, knives and forks, including carvers, spoons, various, salt-cellars, a meek little muffin confined with the utmost precaution under a strong iron cover, moses in the bulrushes, typified by a soft bit of butter in a quantity of parsley, a pale loaf with a powdered head two proof impressions of the bars of the kitchen fireplace on triangular bits of bread, and ultimately a fat family urn, which the waiter staggered in with, expressing in his countenance burden and suffering. After a prolonged absence at this stage of the entertainment, he at length came back with a casket of precious appearance, containing twigs. These I steeped in hot water, and so from the whole of these appliances extracted one cup of I don't know what for Estella. The bill paid, and the waiter remembered, and the ostler not forgotten, and the chambermaid taken into consideration. In a word, the whole house bribed into a state of contempt and animosity, and Estella's purse much lightened. We got into our post-coach and drove away. Turning into Cheapside, and rattling up Newgate Street, we were soon under the walls of which I was so ashamed. "'What place is that?' Estella asked me. I made a foolish pretence of not at first recognizing it, and then told her. As she looked at it, and drew in her head again, murmuring, "'Wretches!' I would not have confessed to my visit for any consideration. Mr. Jaggers," said I, by way of putting it neatly on somebody else, "'has the reputation of being more in the secrets of that dismal place than any man in London.' "'He is more in the secrets of every place, I think.' said Estella, in a low voice. "'You have been accustomed to see him often, I suppose?' "'I have been accustomed to see him at uncertain intervals, ever since I can remember. But I know him no better now than I did before I could speak plainly. What is your own experience of him? Do you advance with him?' "'Once habituated to his distrustful manner,' said I, "'I have done very well.' "'Are you intimate?' I have dined with him at his private house." "'I fancy,' said Estella, shrinking, "'that must be a curious place.'" "'It is a curious place. I should have been cheery of discussing my guardian too freely, even with her. But I should have gone on with the subject so far as to describe the dinner in Gerard Street, if we had not then come into a sudden glare of gas. It seemed, while it lasted, to be all alight and alive with that inexplicable feeling that I had had before, and when we were out of it I was as much dazed for a few moments as if I had been in lightning. So we fell into other talk, and it was principally about the way by which we were traveling, and about what parts of London lay on this side of it, and what on that. The great city was almost new to her, she told me, for she had never left Miss Havisham's neighborhood until she had gone to France and she had merely passed through London then, in going and returning. I asked her if my guardian had any charge of her while she remained here. To that she emphatically said, "'God forbid!' And no more. It was impossible for me to avoid seeing that she cared to attract me, that she made herself winning, and would have won me even if the task had needed pains. Yet this made me none the happier. For, even if she had not taken that tone of our being disposed of by others, I should have felt that she held my heart in her hand, because she wilfully chose to do it, and not because it would have wrung any tenderness in her, to crush it and throw it away. When we passed through Hammersmith, I showed her where Mr. Matthew Pocket lived, and said it was no great way from Richmond, and that I hoped I should see her sometimes. Oh, yes, you are to see me. You are to come when you think proper. You are to be mentioned to the family. Indeed, you are already mentioned. I inquired. Was it a large household she was going to be a member of? No. There are only two, mother and daughter. Her mother is a lady of some station, though not averse to increasing her income. I wonder Miss Havisham could part with you again so soon. It is a part of Miss Havisham's plans for me, Pip said Estella, with a sigh, as if she were tired. I am to write to her constantly, and see her regularly, and report how I go on, I and the jewels, for they are nearly all mine now. It was the first time she had ever called me by my name. Of course she did so purposely, and knew that I should treasure it up. We came to Richmond all too soon, and our destination there was a house by the green a staid old house, where hoops and powder and patches, embroidered coats, rolled stockings, ruffles and swords, had had their court days many a time. Some ancient trees before the house were still cut into fashions as formal and unnatural as the hoops and wigs and stiff skirts, but their own allotted places, in the great possession of the dead, were not far off, and they would soon drop into them, and go the silent way of the rest. A bell with an old voice, which I dare say in its time, had often said to the house, Here is the green farthingale, here is the diamond-hilted sword, here are the shoes with the red heels and the blue solitaire, sounded gravely in the moonlight, and two cherry-colored maids came fluttering out to receive Estella. The doorway soon absorbed her boxes, and she gave me her hand and a smile, and said good-night, and was absorbed likewise. And still I stood looking at the house, thinking how happy I should be if I lived there with her, and knowing that I never was happy with her, but always miserable. I got into the carriage to be taken back to Hammersmith, and I got in with a bad heartache, and I got out with a worse heartache. At our own door I found little Jane Pocket coming home from a little party, escorted by her little lover, and I envied her little lover in spite of his being subject to Flopson. Mr. Pocket was out lecturing, for he was a most delightful lecturer on domestic economy, and his treatise on the management of children and servants were considered the very best text-books on those themes. But Mrs. Pocket was at home, and was in a little difficulty, on account of the baby's having been accommodated with a needle-case to keep in quiet during the unaccountable absence, with a relative in the foot-guards, of Miller's, And more needles were missing than it could be regarded as quite wholesome for a patient of such tender years either to apply externally or to take as a tonic mr pocket being justly celebrated for giving most excellent practical advice and for having a clear and sound perception of things and a highly judicious mind i had some notion in my heartache of begging him to accept my confidence but happening to look up at mrs pocket as she sat reading her book of dignities after prescribing bed as a sovereign remedy for baby, I thought, well, no, I wouldn't. End of chapter thirty three. Chapter thirty four of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations. By Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty four. As I had grown accustomed to my expectations, I had insensibly begun to notice their effect upon myself and those around me. Their influence on my own character I disguised from my recognition as much as possible, but I knew very well that it was not all good. I lived in a state of chronic uneasiness respecting my behaviour to Joe, My conscience was not by any means comfortable about Biddy. When I woke up in the night, like Camilla, I used to think, with a weariness on my spirits, that I should have been happier and better if I had never seen Miss Havisham's face, and had risen to manhood content to be partners with Joe in the honest old forge. Many a time of an evening when I sat alone looking at the fire, I thought, after all, there was no fire like the forge fire and the kitchen fire at home. Yet Estella was so inseparable from all my restlessness and disquiet of mind, that I really fell into confusion as to the limits of my own part in its production. That is to say, supposing I had had no expectations, and yet had had Estella to think of, I could not make out to my satisfaction that I should have done much better. Now, concerning the influence of my position on others, I was in no such difficulty, and so I perceived, though dimly enough perhaps, that it was not beneficial to anybody, and above all that it was not beneficial to Herbert. My lavish habits led his easy nature into expenses that he could not afford, corrupted the simplicity of his life, and disturbed his peace with anxieties and regrets. I was not at all remorseful, for having unwittingly set those other branches of the pocket family to the poor arts they practised because such littleness were their natural bent, and would have been evoked by anybody else if I had left them slumbering. But Herbert's was a very different case, and it often caused me a twinge to think that I had done him evil service in crowding his sparsely furnished chambers with incongruous upholstery work, and placing the canary-breasted avenger at his disposal. So now, as an infallible way of making little ease great ease, I began to contract a quantity of debt. I could hardly begin, but Herbert must begin, too, so he soon followed. At Startop's suggestion, we put ourselves down for election into a club called the Finches of the Grove, the object of which institution I have never divined, if it were not that the members should dine expensively once a fortnight, to quarrel among themselves as much as possible after dinner, and to cause six waiters to get drunk on the stairs. I know that these gratifying social ends were so invariably accomplished that Herbert and I understood nothing else to be referred to in the first standing toast of the Society, which ran, Gentlemen, may the present promotion of good feeling ever reign predominant among the finches of the Grove. The finches spent their money foolishly. The hotel we dined at was in Covent Garden, and the first finch I saw, when I had the honor of joining the Grove, was Bentley Drummle at that time floundering about town in a cab of his own, and doing a great deal of damage to the posts at the street-corners. Occasionally he shot himself out of his equipage head-foremost over the apron, and I saw him on one occasion deliver himself at the door of the grove in this unintentional way, like coals. But here I anticipate a little, for I was not a finch, and could not be, according to the sacred laws of the society, until I came of age. In my confidence in my own resources, I would willingly have taken Herbert's expenses on myself. But Herbert was proud, and I could make no such proposal to him. So he got into difficulties in every direction, and continued to look about him. When we gradually fell into keeping late hours and late company, I noticed that he looked about him with a desponding eye at breakfast-time, that he began to look about him more hopefully about midday that he drooped when he came into dinner, that he seemed to descry capital in the distance rather clearly, after dinner, that he all but realized capital towards midnight, and that at about two o'clock in the morning he became so deeply despondent again as to talk of buying a rifle and going to America, with the general purpose of compelling buffaloes to make his fortune. I was usually at Hammersmith about half the week, and when I was at Hammersmith I haunted Richmond. Whereof, separately, by and by, Herbert would often come to Hammersmith when I was there, and I think at those seasons his father would occasionally have some passing perception that the opening he was looking for had not appeared yet. But in the general tumbling up of the family, his tumbling out in life somewhere was a thing to transact itself somehow. In the meantime Mr. Pocket grew greyer, and tried oftener to lift himself out of his perplexities by the hair while Mrs. Pocket tripped up the family with her footstool, read her book of dignities, lost her pocket-handkerchief, told us about her grandpapa, and taught the young idea how to shoot, by shooting it into bed whenever it attracted her notice. As I am now generalizing a period of my life with the object of clearing my way before me, I can scarcely do so better than by at once completing the description of our usual manners and customs at Barnard's Inn. We spent as much money as we could, and got as little for it as people could make up their minds to give us. We were always more or less miserable, and most of our acquaintance were in the same condition. There was a gay fiction among us that we were constantly enjoying ourselves, and a skeleton truth that we never did. To the best of my belief, our case was in the last aspect a rather common one. Every morning, with an air ever new. Herbert went into the city to look about him. I often paid him a visit in the dark back room, in which he consorted with an ink-jar, a hat-peg, a coal-box, a string-box, an almanac, a desk, and stool, and a ruler. And I do not remember that I ever saw him do anything else but look about him. If we all did what we undertake to do, as faithfully as Herbert did, we might live in a republic of the virtues. He had nothing else to do, poor fellow, except at a certain hour of every afternoon to go to Lloyd's, in observance of a ceremony of seeing his principal, I think. He never did anything else in connection with Lloyd's that I could find out, except come back again. When he felt his case unusually serious, and that he positively must find an opening, he would go on change at a busy time, and walk in and out in a kind of gloomy country-dance-figure among the assembled magnates for says herbert to me coming home to dinner on one of those special occasions i find the truth to be handle that an opening won't come to one but one must go to it so i have been if we had been less attached to one another i think we must have hated one another regularly every morning i detested the chambers beyond expression at that period of repentance and could not endure the sight of the avengers livery which had a more expensive and a less remunerative appearance then than at any other time in the four-and-twenty hours. As we got more and more into debt, breakfast became a hollower and hollower form, and being on one occasion at breakfast-time threatened, by letter, with legal proceedings, not unholy unconnected, as my local paper might put it, with jewellery, I went so far as to seize the avenger by his blue collar and shake him off his feet so that he was actually in the air, like a booted Cupid, for presuming to suppose that we wanted a roll. At certain times—meaning at uncertain times, for they depended on our humor—I would say to Herbert, as if it were a remarkable discovery, My dear Herbert, we are getting on badly. My dear Handel, Herbert would say to me in all sincerity, if you will believe me, those very words are on my lips, by a strange coincidence. Then, Herbert, I would respond, let us look into our affairs. We always derived profound satisfaction from making an appointment for this purpose. I always thought this was business, this was the way to confront the thing, this was the way to take the foe by the throat, and I know Herbert thought so, too. We ordered something rather special for dinner, with a bottle of something similarly out of the common way, in order that our minds might be fortified for the occasion and we might come well up to the mark. Dinner over, we produced a bundle of pens, a copious supply of ink, and a goodly show of writing and blotting paper, for there was something very comfortable in having plenty of stationery. I would then take a sheet of paper, and write across the top of it in a neat hand the heading Memorandum of Pip's Debts, with Barnard's Inn, and the date very carefully added. Herbert would also take a sheet of paper and write across it with similar formalities—Memorandum of Herbert's debts. Each of us would then refer to a confused heap of papers at his side, which had been thrown into drawers, worn into holes in pockets, half-burnt in lighting candles, stuck for weeks into the looking-glass, and otherwise damaged. The sound of our pens going refreshed us exceedingly insomuch that I sometimes found it difficult to distinguish between this edifying business proceeding and actually paying the money. In point of meritorious character, the two things seemed about equal. When we had written a little while, I would ask Herbert how he got on. Herbert probably would have been scratching his head in a most rueful manner at the sight of his accumulating figures. "'They are mounting up, Handel,' Herbert would say. "'Upon my life, they are mounting up.' Be firm, Herbert, I would retort, plying my own pen with great assiduity. Look the thing in the face. Look into your affairs. Stare them out of countenance. So I would handle. Only they are staring me out of countenance. However, my determined manner would have its effect, and Herbert would fall to work again. After time he would give up once more, on the plea that he had not yet got Cobbs's bill, or Lobbs's, or Nobs's as the case might be. Then, Herbert, estimate—estimate in round numbers—and put it down. What a fellow of resource you are! My friend would reply, with admiration, really, your business powers are very remarkable. I thought so, too. I established with myself, on these occasions, the reputation of a first-rate man of business—prompt, decisive, energetic, clear, cool-headed. When I had got all my responsibilities down upon my list, I compared each with the bill and ticked it off. My self-approval when I ticked an entry was quite a luxurious sensation. When I had no more ticks to make, I folded all my bills up uniformly, docketed each on the back, and tied the whole into a symmetrical bundle. Then I did the same for Herbert, who modestly said he had not my administrative genius and felt that I had brought his affairs into a focus for him. My business habits had one other bright feature, which I called leaving a margin. For example, supposing Herbert's debts to be one hundred and sixty-four pounds four and twopence, I would say, leave a margin and put them down at two hundred. Or supposing my own to be four times as much, I would leave a margin and put them down at seven hundred. I had the highest opinion of the wisdom of this same margin, but I am bound to acknowledge that on looking back I deem it to have been an expensive device. For we always ran into new debt immediately, to the full extent of the margin, and sometimes, in the sense of freedom and solvency it imparted, got pretty far on into another margin. But there was a calm, a rest, a virtuous hush consequent on these examinations of our affairs that gave me, for the time, an admirable opinion of myself. Soothed by my exertions, my method, and Herbert's compliments, I would sit with his symmetrical bundle and my own on the table before me among the stationery, and feel like a bank of some sort, rather than a private individual. We shut our outer door on these solemn occasions, in order that we might not be interrupted. I had fallen into my serene state one evening, when we heard a letter drop through the slit in the said door, and fall on the ground. "'It's for you, Handel,' said Herbert, going out and coming back with it, "'and I hope there is nothing the matter.' This was in allusion to its heavy black seal and border. The letter was signed, Trab and Co., and its contents were simply, "'That I was an honoured sir, and that they begged to inform me That Mrs. J. Gargery, had departed this life on Monday last, at twenty minutes past six in the evening, and that my attendance was requested at the interment on Monday next, at three o'clock in the afternoon. End of chapter 34 Chapter 35 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty five It was the first time that a grave had opened in my road of life, and the gap it made in the smooth ground was wonderful. The figure of my sister in her chair by the kitchen fire haunted me night and day. That the place could possibly be without her was something my mind seemed unable to compass, and whereas she had seldom or never been in my thoughts of late, I had now the strangest ideas that she was coming towards me in the street, or that she would presently knock at the door. In my rooms, too, with which she had never been at all associated, there was at once the blankness of death, and a perpetual suggestion of the sound of her voice, or the turn of her face or figure, as if she were still alive, and had been often there. Whatever my fortunes might have been, I could scarcely have recalled my sister with much tenderness, but I suppose there is a shock of regret which may exist without much tenderness. Under its influence, and perhaps to make up for the want of the softer feeling, I was seized with a violent indignation against the assailant from whom she had suffered so much, and I felt that on sufficient proof I could have revengefully pursued Orlick, or any one else, to the last extremity. Having written to Joe to offer consolation, and to assure him that I should come to the funeral, I passed the intermediate days in the curious state of mind I have glanced at. I went down early in the morning, and alighted at the blue boar, in good time to walk over to the forge. It was fine summer weather again, and as I walked along, the times when I was a little helpless creature, and my sitter did not spare me, vividly returned. But they returned with the gentle tone upon them that softened even the edge of Tickler. For now the very breath of the beans and clover whispered to my heart that the day must come when it would be well for my memory that others walking in the sunshine should be softened as they thought of me. At last I came within sight of the house, and saw that Trab and Co. had put in a funeral execution and taken possession. Two dismally absurd persons, each ostentatiously exhibiting a crutch done up in a black bandage, as if that instrument could possibly communicate any comfort to anybody, were posted at the front door. And in one of them I recognized the post-boy, discharged from the bore for turning a young couple into a saw-pit on their bridal morning, in consequence of intoxication, rendering it necessary for him to ride his horse clasped round the neck with both arms. All the children of the village, and most of the women, were admiring these sable warders, and the closed windows of the house and forge. And as I came up, one of the two warders, the postboy, knocked at the door, implying that I was far too much exhausted by grief to have strength remaining to knock for myself. Another sable warder, a carpenter had once eaten two geese for a wager, opened the door, and showed me into the best parlor. Here Mr. Trabb had taken unto himself the best table, and had got all the leaves up, and was holding a kind of black bazaar with the aid of a quantity of black pins. At the moment of my arrival he had just finished putting somebody's hat into black long-clothes, like an African baby, so he held out his hand for mine. But I, misled by the action, and confused by the occasion, shook hands with him with every testimony of warm affection. Poor dear Joe! entangled in a little black cloak, tied in a large bow under his chin, was seated apart at the upper end of the room, where, as chief mourner, he had evidently been stationed by Trabb. When I bent down and said to him, Dear Joe, how are you? He said, Peep, old chap, you knowed her when she were a fine figure of her, and clasped my hand, and said no more. Biddy, looking very neat and modest in her black dress, went quietly here and there, and was very helpful. When I had spoken to Biddy, as I thought it not a time for talking, I went and sat down near Joe, and they began to wonder in what part of the house it—she—my sister—was. The air of the parlour being faint with the smell of sweet-cake, I looked about for the table of refreshments. It was scarcely visible until one had got accustomed to the gloom. But there was a cut-up plum-cake upon it, and there were cut-up oranges and sandwiches and biscuits, and two decanters that I knew very well as ornaments, but had never seen used in all my life—one full of port and one of sherry. Standing at this table, I became conscious of the servile Pumblechook, in a black cloak and several yards of hat-band, who was alternately stuffing himself and making obsequious movements to catch my attention. The moment he succeeded he came over to me, breathing sherry and crumbs, and said in a subdued voice, "'May I, dear sir?' and did. I then descried Mr. and Mrs. Hubble, the last-named, in a decent speechless paroxysm in a corner. We were all going to follow, and were all in course of being tied up separately by trab into ridiculous bundles. Which, I meet her say, Pip," Joe whispered to me, as we were being what Mr. Trabb called formed in the parlour, two and two, and it was dreadfully like a preparation for some grim kind of dance, which I meet her say, sir, as I would in preference have carried her to the church myself, along with three or four friendly ones what come to it with willing hearts and arms, but it were considered thought the neighbors would look down on such, and would be of opinions as it were wanting in respect. "'Pocket-handkerchiefs out, all,' cried Mr. Trabb at this point, in a depressed business-like voice. "'Pocket-handkerchiefs out. We are ready.' So we all put our pocket-handkerchiefs to our faces, as if our noses were bleeding, and filed out two and two, Joe and I, Biddy and Pumblechook. Mr. and Mrs. Hubble. The remains of my poor sister had been brought round by the kitchen door, and, it being a point of undertaking ceremony, that the six bearers must be stifled and blinded under a horrible black velvet housing with a white border. The whole looked like a blind monster with twelve human legs, shuffling and blundering along under the guidance of two keepers, the postboy and his comrade. The neighborhood, however, highly approved of these arrangements, and we were much admired as we went through the village, the more youthful and vigorous part of the community making dashes now and then to cut us off, and lying in wait to intercept us at points of vantage. At such times the more exuberant among them called out in an excited manner on our emergence round some corner of expectancy, "'Here they come! Here they are!' And we were all but cheered. In this progress I was much annoyed by the abject Pumblechook, who being behind me persisted all the way as a delicate attention in arranging my streaming hat-band and smoothing my cloak. My thoughts were further distracted by the excessive pride of Mr. and Mrs. Hubble, who were surpassingly conceited and vainglorious in being members of so distinguished a procession. And now the range of marshes lay clear before us, with the sails of the ships on the river growing out of it. And we went into the churchyard, close to the graves of my unknown parents, Philip Pirrup, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above. And there my sister was laid quietly in the earth, while the locks sang high above it, and the light wind strewed it with beautiful shadows of clouds and trees. Of the conduct of the worldly-minded Pumblechook, while this was doing, I desire to say no more than it was all addressed to me. And that even when those noble passages were read which remind humanity how it brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out, and how it fleeth like a shadow and never continueth long in one stay, I heard him cough a reservation of the case of a young gentleman who came unexpectedly into large property. When we got back he had the hardihood to tell me that he wished my sister could have known I had done her so much honour, and to hint that she would have considered it reasonably purchased at the price of her death. After that he drank all the rest of the sherry, and Mr. Hubble drank the port, and the two talked, which I have since observed to be customary in such cases, as if they were of quite another race from the deceased, and were notoriously immortal. Finally he went away with Mr. and Mrs. Hubble To make an evening of it, I felt sure, and to tell the jolly barge-men he was the founder of my fortunes and my earliest benefactor. When they were all gone, and when Trabb and his men, but not his boy, I looked for him, had crammed their mummery into bags, and were gone too. The house felt wholesomer. Soon afterwards, Bedee Joe, and I had a cold dinner together. But we dined in the best parlor, not in the old kitchen and Joe was so exceedingly particular what he did with his knife and fork, and the salt cellar, and what not, that there was great restraint upon us. But after dinner, when I made him take his pipe, and when I had loitered with him about the forge, and when we sat down together on the great block of stone outside it, we got on better. I noticed that after the funeral Joe changed his clothes so far as to make a compromise between his Sunday dress and working dress, in which the dear fellow looked natural and like the man he was. He was very much pleased by my asking if I might sleep in my own little room, and I was pleased too, for I felt that I had done rather a great thing in making the request. When the shadows of evening were closing in, I took an opportunity of getting into the garden with Biddy for a little talk. "'Biddy,' said I, "'I think you might have written to me about these sad matters.' "'Do you, Mr. Pip?' said Biddy. I should have written, if I had thought that. Don't suppose that I mean to be unkind, Biddy, when I say I consider that you ought to have thought that. Do you, Mr. Pip? She was so quiet, and had such an orderly, good, and pretty way with her, that I did not like the thought of making her cry again. After looking a little at her downcast eyes as she walked beside me, I gave up that point. I suppose it will be difficult for you to remain here now, Biddy, dear. Oh, I can't do so, Mr. Pip," said Biddy, in a tone of regret, but still of quiet conviction. "'I have been speaking to Mrs. Hubble, and I am going to her to-morrow. I hope we shall be able to take some care of Mr. Gargery together until he settles down.' "'How are you going to live, Biddy? If you want any mu "'How am I going to live?' repeated Biddy, striking in with a momentary flush upon her face, "'I'll tell you, Mr. Pip. I am going to try to get the place of mistress in the new school nearly finished here. I can be well-recommended by all the neighbors, and I hope I can be industrious and patient, and teach myself while I teach others. You know, Mr. Pip," pursued Biddy, with a smile as she raised her eyes to my face, "'the new schools are not like the old, but I learnt a good deal from you after that time, and I have had time since then to improve.' "'I think you would always improve, Biddy under any circumstances." "'Ah! Except in my bad side of human nature,' murmured Biddy. It was not so much a reproach as an irresistible thinking aloud. Well, I thought, I would give up that point, too. So I walked a little further with Biddy, looking silently at her downcast eyes. "'I have not heard the particulars of my sister's death, Biddy.' "'They are very slight, poor thing. She had been in one of her bad states, though they had got better of late, rather than worse, for four days, when she came out of it in the evening, just at tea-time, and said quite plainly, Joe! As she had never said any word for a long while, I ran and fetched in Mr. Gargery from the forge. She made signs to me that she wanted him to sit down close to her, and wanted me to put her arms round his neck. So I put them round his neck. And she laid her head down on his shoulder, quite content and satisfied. And so she presently said, "'Joe,' again. And once, "'Pardon,' and once, "'Pip.' And so she never lifted her head up any more. And it was just an hour later, when we laid it down on her own bed, because we found she was gone." Biddy cried. The darkening garden, and the lane, and the stars that were coming out, were blurred in my own sight. Nothing was ever discovered, Biddy. Nothing. Do you know what has become of Orlick? I should think, from the color of his clothes, that he is working in the quarries. Of course you have seen him, then. Why are you looking at that dark tree in the lane? I saw him there, on the night she died. That was not the last time, either, Biddy. No. I have seen him there, since we have been walking here. It is of no use," said Biddy, laying a hand upon my arm as I was for running out. You know, I would not deceive you. He was not there a minute, and he's gone." It revived my utmost indignation to find that she was still pursued by this fellow, and I felt inveterate against him. I told her so and told her that I would spend any money, or take any pains, to drive him out of that country. By degrees she led me into more temperate talk, and she told me how Joe loved me, and how Joe never complained of anything. She didn't say, of me. She had no need. I knew what she meant. But ever did his duty in his way of life, with a strong hand, a quiet tongue, and a gentle heart. Indeed. It would be hard to say too much for him," said I. "'And, Biddy, we must often speak of these things, for, of course, I shall be often down here now. I am not going to leave poor Joe alone." Biddy said never a single word. "'Biddy, don't you hear me?' "'Yes, Mr. Pip.' Not to mention your calling me Mr. Pip, which appears to me to be in bad taste, Biddy. What do you mean?' "'What do I mean?' asked Biddy, timidly. Biddy, said I, in a virtuously self-asserting manner, I must request to know what you mean by this." "'By this,' said Biddy. "'Now don't echo,' I retorted. used not to echo, Biddy?' "'Used not,' said Biddy. "'Oh, Mr. Pip, used!' Well, I rather thought I would give up that point, too. After another silent turn in the garden, I fell back on the main position. "'Biddy,' said I, "'I made a remark respecting my coming down here often to see Joe, which you received with a marked silence. Have the goodness, Biddy, to tell me why.' "'Are you quite sure, then, that you will come to see him often?' asked Biddy, stopping in the narrow garden-walk, and looking at me under the stars with a clear and honest eye. Oh, dear me," said I, as if I found myself compelled to give up Biddy in despair, this is really a very bad side of human nature. Don't say any more, if you please, Biddy. This shocks me very much." For which cogent reason, I kept Biddy at a distance during supper, and, when I went up to my own old little room, took as stately a leave of her as I could in my murmuring soul, deem reconcilable with the churchyard and the event of the day. As often as I was restless in the night, and that was every quarter of an hour, I reflected what an unkindness, what an injury, what an injustice Biddy had done me. Early in the morning I was to go. Early in the morning I was out, and looking in, unseen, at one of the wooden windows of the forge. There I stood, for minutes, looking at Joe, already at work, with a glow of health and strength upon his face, that made it show as if the bright sun of the life in store for him were shining on it. Good-bye, dear Joe. No, don't wipe it off. For God's sake, give me your blackened hand. I shall be down soon and often. Never too soon, sir," said Joe, and never too often, Pip. Biddy was waiting for me at the kitchen door, with a mug of new milk and a crust of bread. "'Biddy,' said I, when I gave her my hand at parting, "'I am not angry, but I am hurt.' "'No, don't be hurt,' she pleaded, quite pathetically. "'Let only me be hurt, if I have been ungenerous.' Once more the mists were rising as I walked away. If they disclosed to me as I suspect they did, that I should not come back, and that Biddy was quite right. All I can say is, they were quite right, too. End of chapter thirty-five Chapter thirty-six of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter thirty six Herbert and I went on from bad to worse in the way of increasing our debts, looking into our affairs, leaving margins, and the like exemplary transactions, and time went on, whether or no, as he has a way of doing, and I came of age in fulfilment of Herbert's prediction that I should do so before I knew where I was. Herbert himself had come of age eight months before me, as he had nothing else than his majority to come into, the event did not make a profound sensation in Barnard's Inn. But we had looked forward to my one-and-twentieth birthday, with a crowd of speculations and anticipations, for we had both considered that my guardian could hardly help saying something definite on that occasion. I had taken care to have it well understood in Little Britain when my birthday was. On the day before it, I received an official note from Wemmick, informing me that Mr. Jaggers would be glad if I would call upon him at five in the afternoon of the auspicious day. This convinced us that something great was to happen, and threw me into an unusual flutter when I repaired to my guardian's office a model of punctuality. In the outer office, Wemmick offered me his congratulations, and incidentally rubbed the side of his nose with a folded piece of tissue paper that I liked the look of, but he said nothing, respecting it, and motioned me with a nod into my guardian's room. It was November, and my guardian was standing before his fire, leaning his back against the chimney-piece, with his hands under his coat-tails. "'Well, Pip,' said he, "'I must call you Mr. Pip to-day. Congratulations, Mr. Pip.' We shook hands. He was always a remarkably short shaker, and I thanked him. "'Take a chair, Mr. Pip,' said my guardian. As I sat down, and he preserved his attitude and bent his brows at his boots, I felt at a disadvantage, which reminded me of that old time when I had been put upon a tombstone. The two ghastly casts on the shelf were not far from him, and their expression was as if they were making a stupid, apoplectic attempt to attend the conversation. Now, my young friend, my guardian began, as if I were a witness in the box, I am going to have a word or two with you. If you please, sir. What do you suppose, said Mr. Jaggers, bending forward to look at the ground, and throwing his head back to look at the ceiling, what do you suppose you are living at the rate of? At the rate of, sir? At, repeated mr jaggers still looking at the ceiling the rate of and then looked all round the room and paused with his pocket-handkerchief in his hand halfway to his nose i had looked into my affairs so often that i had thoroughly destroyed any slight notion i might ever have had of their bearings reluctantly i confessed myself quite unable to answer the question this reply seemed agreeable to mr jaggers who said, "'I thought so,' and blew his nose with an air of satisfaction. "'Now, I have asked you a question, my friend,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Have you anything to ask me?' "'Of course, it would be a great relief to me to ask you several questions, sir. But I remember your prohibition.' "'Ask one,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Is my benefactor to be made known to me to-day?' no ask another is that confidence to be imparted to me soon wave that a moment said mr jaggers and ask another i looked about me but there appeared to be now no possible escape from the inquiry have i anything to receive sir on that mr jaggers said triumphantly i thought we should come to it and called to Wemmick to give him that piece of paper. Wemmick appeared, handed it in, and disappeared. "'Now, Mr. Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'attend, if you please. You have been drawing pretty freely here. Your name occurs pretty often in Wemmick's cash-book. But you are in debt, of course. I am afraid I must say yes, sir.' "'You know you must say yes, don't you?' said Mr. Jaggers. Yes, sir. I don't ask you what you owe, because you don't know. And if you did know, you wouldn't tell me. You would say less. Yes, yes, my friend," cried Mr. Jaggers, waving his forefinger to stop me, as I made a show of protesting, It's likely enough that you think you wouldn't, but you would. You'll excuse me, but I know better than you. Now, take this piece of paper in your hand. You have got it? "'Very good. Now, unfold it, and tell me what it is.' "'This is a bank-note,' said I. "'For five hundred pounds.' "'That is a bank-note,' repeated Mr. Jaggers, "'for five hundred pounds, and a very handsome sum of money, too, I think. You consider it so?' "'How could I do otherwise?' "'Ah! but answer the question.' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Undoubtedly.' "'You consider it undoubtedly a handsome sum of money. Now, that handsome sum of money, Pip, is your own. It is a present to you on this day, in earnest of your expectations. And at the rate of that handsome sum of money per annum, and at no higher rate, you are to live until the donor of the whole appears.' That is to say, you will now take your money affairs entirely into your own hands, and you will draw from Wemmick one hundred and twenty-five pounds per quarter, until you are in communication with the Fountainhead, and no longer with the mere agent. As I have told you before, I am the mere agent. I execute my instructions, and I am paid for doing so. I think them injudicious. But I am not paid for giving any opinion on their merits." I was beginning to express my gratitude to my benefactor for the great liberality with which I was treated, when Mr. Jaggers stopped me. "'I am not paid, Pip,' said he coolly, "'to carry your words to any one,' and then gathered up his coat-tails, as he had gathered up the subject, and stood frowning at his boots, as if he suspected them of designs against him. After a pause, I hinted, "'There was a question just now, Mr. Jaggers, which you desired me to waive for a moment. I hope I am doing nothing wrong in asking it again.' "'What is it?' said he. I might have known that he would never help me out, but it took me aback to have to shape the question afresh, as if it were quite new. "'Is it likely,' I said, after hesitating, "'that my patron the fountain-head you have spoken of, Mr. Jaggers, will soon there I delicately stopped will soon what asked Mr. Jaggers that's no question as it stands, you know will soon come to London said I, after casting about for a precise form of words, or summon me anywhere else now here, replied Mr. Jaggers, fixing me for the first time with his dark, deep-set eyes, we must revert to the evening when we first encountered one another in your village. What did I tell you then, Pip?" "'You told me, Mr. Jaggers, that it might be years hence when that person appeared.' "'Just so,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'That's my answer.' As we looked full at one another, I felt my breath come quicker in my strong desire to get something out of him. And as I felt that it came quicker, and as I felt that he saw that it came quicker, I felt that I had less chance than ever of getting anything out of him. Do you suppose there will still be years hence, Mr. Jaggers?" Mr. Jaggers shook his head, not in negativing the question, but in altogether negating the notion that he could anyhow be got to answer it. And the two horrible casts of the twitched faces looked, when my eyes strayed up to them, as if they had come to a crisis in their suspended detention, and were going to sneeze. Come, said Mr. Jaggers, warming the backs of his legs with the backs of his warmed hands. I'll be plain with you, my friend, Pip. That's a question I must not be asked. You'll understand that better, when I tell you it's a question that might compromise me. come, I'll go a little further with you. I'll say something more." He bent down so low to frown at his boots, that he was able to rub the calves of his legs in the paws he made. "'When that person discloses,' said Mr. Jaggers, straightening himself, "'you and that person will settle your own affairs. When that person discloses, my part in this business will cease and determine. When that person discloses, it will not be necessary for me to know anything about it and that's all I have got to say. We looked at one another, until I withdrew my eyes, and looked thoughtfully at the floor. From this last speech I derived the notion that Miss Havisham, for some reason or no reason, had not taken him into her confidence as to her designing me for Estella, that he resented this, and felt a jealousy about it, or that he really did object to that scheme, and would have nothing to do with it. When I raised my eyes again, I found that he had been shrewdly looking at me all the time, and was doing so still. "'If that is all you have to say, sir,' I remarked, "'there can be nothing left for me to say.' He nodded assent, and pulled out his thief-dreaded watch, and asked me where I was going to dine. I replied at my own chambers with Herbert. As a necessary sequence, I asked him if he would favour us with his company, and he promptly accepted the invitation but he insisted on walking home with me, in order that I might make no extra preparation for him, and first he had a letter or two to write, and, of course, had his hands to wash. So I said I would go into the outer office and talk to Wemmick. The fact was, that when the five hundred pounds had come into my pocket, a thought had come into my head, which had been often there before, and it appeared to me that Wemmick was a good person to advise with concerning such thought. He had already locked up his safe, and made preparations for going home. He had left his desk, brought out his two greasy office candlesticks, and stood them in line with the snuffers on a slab near the door, ready to be extinguished. He had raked his fire low, put his hat and greatcoat ready, and was beating himself all over the chest with his safe-key, as an athletic exercise after business. "'Mr. Wemmick,' said I, "'I want to ask your opinion. I am very desirous to serve a friend." Wemmick tightened his post office, and shook his head, as if his opinion were dead against any fatal weakness of that sort. "'This friend,' I pursued, is trying to get on in commercial life, but has no money, and finds it difficult and disheartening to make a beginning. Now I want, somehow, to help him to a beginning.' "'We've money down,' said Wemmick in a tone drier than any sawdust. With some money down," I replied, for an uneasy remembrance shot across me, of that symmetrical bundle of papers at home, with some money down, and perhaps some anticipation of my expectations. "'Mr. Pip,' said Wemmick, "'I should like just to run over with you, on my fingers, if you please, the names of the various bridges up as high as Chelsea Reach.' Let's see. There's London, one, Southwark, two, Blackfriars, three, Waterloo, four, Westminster, five, Foxhall, six. He had checked off each bridge in its turn, with the handle of his safe-key on the palm of his hand. There's as many as six, you see, to choose from. I don't understand you, said I. Choose your bridge, Mr. Pip returned wemmick and take a walk upon your bridge and pitch your money into the thames over the center arch of your bridge and you know the end of it serve a friend with it and you may know the end of it too but it's a less pleasant and profitable end i could have posted a newspaper in his mouth he made it so wide after saying this this is very discouraging said i meant to be so said wemmick then Is it your opinion, I inquired, with some little indignation, that a man should never invest portable property in a friend?" said Wemmick. Certainly he should not, unless he wants to get rid of the friend, and then it becomes a question how much portable property it may be worth to get rid of him. And that, said I, is your deliberate opinion, Mr. Wemmick? That, he returned, is my deliberate opinion in this office." "'Ah!' said I, pressing him, for I thought I saw him near a loophole here. "'But would that be your opinion at Walworth?' "'Mr. Pip,' he replied with gravity, "'Walworth is one place, and this office is another. Much as the aged is one person, and Mr. Jaggers is another, they must not be confounded together my walworth sentiments must be taken at walworth none but my official sentiments can be taken in this office very well said i much relieved then i shall look you up at walworth you may depend upon it mr pip he returned you will be welcome there in a private and personal capacity we had held this conversation in a low voice well knowing my guardian's ears to be the sharpest of the sharp. As he now appeared in his doorway, towelling his hands, Wemmick got on his greatcoat, and stood by to snuff out the candles. We all three went into the street together, and from the doorstep Wemmick turned his way, and Mr. Jaggers and I turned ours. I could not help wishing more than once that evening that Mr. Jaggers had had an aged in Gerrard Street, or a stinger, or a something or a somebody to unbend his brows a little. It was an uncomfortable consideration, on a twenty-first birthday, that coming of age at all seemed hardly worth while in such a guarded and suspicious world as he made of it. He was a thousand times better informed and cleverer than Wemmick, and yet I would a thousand times rather have had Wemmick to dinner. And Mr. Jaggers made not me alone intensely melancholy, because after he was gone, Herbert said of himself, with his eyes fixed on the fire, that he thought he must have committed a felony, and forgotten the details of it, he felt so dejected and guilty. End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 37 Deeming Sunday the best day for taking Mr. Wemmick's Walworth sentiments, I devoted the next ensuing Sunday afternoon to a pilgrimage to the castle. On arriving before the battlements, I found the Union Jack flying, and the drawbridge up, but undeterred by this show of defiance and resistance, I rang at the gate, and was admitted in a most pacific manner by the aged. "'My son, sir,' said the old man, after securing the drawbridge, "'rather had it in his mind that you might happen to drop in, and he left word that he would soon be home from his afternoon's walk. He is very regular in his walks, is my son. Very regular in everything, is my son.' I nodded at the old gentleman, as Rummick himself might have nodded, and we went in, and sat down by the fireside. "'You made acquaintance with my son, sir?' said the old man, in his chirping way, while he warmed his hands at the blaze. "'At his uh, office, I expect?' I nodded. Ha! I have heard my son is a wonderful hand at his business, sir.' I nodded hard. "'Yes, so they tell me, his business is the law i nodded harder which makes it more surprising in my son said the old man for he was not brought up to the law but to the wine cooperin. curious to know how the old gentleman stood informed concerning the reputation of mr jaggers i roared that name at him he threw me into the greatest confusion by laughing heartily and replying in a very sprightly manner no no to be sure you're right and to this hour i have not the faintest notion what he meant or what joke he thought i had made as i could not sit there nodding at him perpetually without making some other attempt to interest him i shouted an inquiry whether his own calling in life had been the wine coopering By dint of straining that term out of myself several times and tapping the old gentleman on the chest to associate it with him I at last succeeded in making my meaning understood. No," said the old gentleman. "The warehouse in, the warehouse in, first over yonder. He appeared to mean up the chimney, but I believe he intended to refer me to Liverpool, and then in the city of near. However, having an infirmity for, I am hard of hearing, sir. I expressed in pantomime the greatest astonishment. "'Yes, hard of hearing, having that infirmity coming upon me. My son, he went into the law, and he took charge of me, and he, by little and little, made out this elegant and beautiful property. But returning to what you said, you know,' pursued the old man, again laughing heartily, what I say is now to be sure, you're right." I was modestly wondering whether my utmost ingenuity would have enabled me to say anything that would have amused him half as much as this imaginary pleasantry, when I was startled by a sudden click in the wall on one side of the chimney, and the ghostly tumbling open of a little wooden flap with John upon it. The old man, following my eyes, cried with great triumph, My son's come home," and we both went out to the drawbridge. It was worth any money to see Wemmick waving a salute to me from the other side of the moat, when we might have shaken hands across it with the greatest ease. The aged was so delighted to work the drawbridge that I made no offer to assist him, but stood quiet until Wemmick had come across, and had presented me to Miss Skiffins, a lady by whom he was accompanied. Miss Skiffins was of a wooden appearance, and was, like her escort, in the post-office branch of the service. She might have been some two or three years younger than Wemmick, and I judged her to stand possessed of portable property. The cut of her dress, from the waist upward, both before and behind, made her figure very like a boy's kite, and I might have pronounced her gown a little too decidedly orange, and her gloves a little too intensely green but she seemed to be a good sort of fellow, and showed a high regard for the aged. I was not long in discovering that she was a frequent visitor at the castle, for, on our going in, and my complimenting Wemmick on his ingenious contrivance for announcing himself to the aged, he begged me to give my attention for a moment to the other side of the chimney, and disappeared. Presently another click came, and another little door tumbled open, with Miss Skiffins on it. Then Miss Skiffins shut up, and John tumbled open. Then Miss Skiffins and John both tumbled open together, and finally shut up together. On Mammock's return from working these mechanical appliances, I expressed the great admiration with which I regarded them, and he said, Well, you know, they're both pleasant and useful to the aged. And by George, sir, it's a thing worth mentioning, that of all the people who come to this gate, the secret of those pools is only known to the aged, Miss Skiffins, and, me. and Mr. Wemmick made them," added Miss Skiffins, with his own hands, out of his own head. While Miss Skiffins was taking off her bonnet, she retained her green gloves during the evening as an outward and visible sign that there was company. Wemmick invited me to take a walk with him round the property, and see how the island looked in winter-time. Thinking that he did this, to give me an opportunity of taking his wall with sentiments, I seized the opportunity as soon as we were out of the castle. Having thought of the matter with care, I approached my subject as if I had never hinted at it before. I informed Wemmick that I was anxious in behalf of Herbert Pocket, and I told him how we had first met, and how we had fought. I glanced at Herbert's home, and at his character, and at his having no means but such as he was dependent on his father for—those uncertain and unpunctual. I alluded to the advantages I had derived in my first rawness and ignorance from his society, and I confessed that I feared I had but ill repaid them, and that he might have done better without me and my expectations. Keeping Miss Habersham in the background at a great distance, I still hinted at the possibility of my having competed with him in his prospects, and at the certainty of his possessing a generous soul and being far above any mean distrusts, retaliations, or designs. For all these reasons," I told Wemmick, and because he was my young companion and friend, and I had a great affection for him, I wished my own good fortune to reflect some rays upon him, and therefore I sought advice from Wemmick's experience and knowledge of men and affairs, how I could best try, with my resources, to help Herbert to some present income say, of a hundred a year, to keep him in good hope and heart, and gradually to buy him on to some small partnership. I begged Wemmick, in conclusion, to understand that my help must always be rendered without Herbert's knowledge or suspicion, and that there was no one else in the world with whom I could advise. I wound up by laying my hand upon his shoulder and saying, I can't help confiding in you, though I know it must be troublesome to you, but that is your fault." in having ever brought me here." Wemmick was silent for a little while, and then said, with a kind of start, "'Well, you know, Mr. Pip, I must tell you one thing. This is devilish good of you.' "'Say you'll have me to be good, then?' said I." God, replied Wemmick, shaking his head, "'That's not my trade!' "'Nor is this your trading-place,' said I. "'You are right,' he returned. You hit the nail on the head. Mr. Pip, I'll put on my considering cap, and I think all you want to do may be done by degrees. Skiffins, that's her brother, is an accountant and agent. I'll look him up and go to work for you." "'I thank you ten thousand times. On the contrary,' said he, "'I thank you. For though we are strictly in our private and personal capacity, still it may be mentioned that there are Newgate cobwebs about, and it brushes them away." After a little further conversation to the same effect, we returned into the castle, where we found Miss Skiffins preparing tea. The responsible duty of making the toast was delegated to the aged, and that excellent old gentleman was so intent upon it, that he seemed to me in some danger of melting his eyes. It was no nominal meal that we were going to make, but a vigorous reality. The aged prepared such a haystack of buttered toast that I could scarcely see him over it, as it simmered on an iron stand hooked on to the top bar, while Miss Skiffins brewed such a jorum of tea that the pig in the back premises became strongly excited, and repeatedly expressed his desire to participate in the entertainment. The flag had been struck, and the gun had been fired at the right moment of time, and I felt a snugly cut off from the rest of Walworth as if the moat were thirty feet wide by as many deep. Nothing disturbed the tranquillity of the castle, but the occasional tumbling open of John and Miss Skiffin's, which little doors were a prey to some spasmodic infirmity, had made me sympathetically uncomfortable, until I got used to it. I inferred from the methodical nature of Miss Skiffin's arrangements that she made tea there every Sunday night, and I rather suspected that a classic brooch she wore, representing the profile of an undesirable female, with a very straight nose, and a very new moon, was a piece of portable property that had been given her by Wemmick. We ate the whole of the toast, and drank tea in proportion, and it was delightful to see how warm and greasy we all got after it. The aged especially might have passed for some clean old chief of a savage tribe just oiled. After a short pause for repose, Miss Skiffin's, in the absence of the little servant who, it seemed, retired to the bosom of her family on Sunday afternoons, washed up the tea-things in a trifling, ladylike, amateur manner that compromised none of us. Then she put on her gloves again, and we drew round the fire. And Wemmick said, "'Now, aged parent, tip us the paper.' Wemmick explained to me, while the aged got his spectacles out, that this was according to custom and that it gave the old gentleman infinite satisfaction to read the news aloud. "'I won't offer an apology,' said Wemmick, for he isn't capable of many pleasures. Are you, aged P?' "'All right, John, all right,' returned the old man, seeing himself spoken to. "'Only tip him a nod every now and then when he looks off his paper,' said Wemmick, "'and he'll be happy as a king. We're all attention, aged one.' "'All right, John, all right.' returned the cheerful old man, so busy and so pleased that it really was quite charming. The aged reading reminded me of the classes at Mr. Wopsle's great-aunts, with the pleasanter peculiarity that it seemed to come through a keyhole. As he wanted the candles close to him, and as he was always on the verge of putting either his head or the newspaper into them, he required as much watching as a powder-mill. But Wemmick was equally untiring and gentle in his vigilance and the aged red arm, quite unconscious of his many rescues. Whenever he looked at us, we all expressed the greatest interest and amazement, and nodded until he resumed again. As Wemmick and Miss Skiffins sat side by side, and as I sat in a shadowy corner, I observed a slow and gradual elongation of Mr. Wemmick's mouth, powerfully suggestive of his slowly and gradually stealing his arm round Miss Skiffins' waist. In course of time. I saw his hand appear on the other side of Miss Skiffin's, but at that moment Miss Skiffin's neatly stopped him with the green glove, unwound his arm again, as if it were an article of dress, and, with the greatest deliberation, laid it on the table before her. Miss Skiffin's composure, while she did this, was one of the most remarkable sights I have ever seen, and if I could have thought the act consistent with abstraction of mind, I should have deemed that Miss Skiffin's performed it mechanically. By and by, I noticed Wemmick's arm beginning to disappear again, and gradually fading out of view. Shortly afterwards, his mouth began to widen again. After an interval of suspense on my part—that was quite enthralling, and almost painful—I saw his hand appear on the other side of Miss Skiffins. Instantly, Miss Skiffins stopped it with the neatness of a placid boxer, took off that girdle or cestus as before, and laid it on the table. Taking the table to represent the path of virtue, I am justified in stating, that during the whole time of the aged's reading, Wemmick's arm was straying from the path of virtue, and being recalled to it by Miss Skiffins. At last, the aged read himself into a light slumber. This was the time for Wemmick to produce a little kettle, a tray of glasses, and a black bottle with a porcelain-topped cork, representing some clerical dignitary of a Rubicund and social aspect. With the aid of these appliances, we all had something warm to drink, including the aged, who were soon awake again. Miss Skiffin's mixed, and I observed that she and Wemmick drank out of one glass. Of course I knew better than to offer to see Miss Skiffin's home, and under the circumstances I thought I had best go first, which I did, taking a cordial leave of the aged, and having passed a pleasant evening. Before a week was out, I received a note from Wemmick dated Walworth, stating that he hoped he had made some advance in that matter appertaining to our private and personal capacities, and that he would be glad if I could come and see him again upon it. So I went out to Walworth again, and yet again, and yet again, and I saw him by appointment in the city several times, but never held any communication with him on the subject in or near Little Britain. The upshot was. That we found a worthy young merchant or shipping broker, not long established in business, who wanted intelligent help and who wanted capital, and who, in due course of time and receipt, would want a partner between him and me. Secret articles were signed of which Herbert was the subject, and I paid him half of my five hundred pounds down and engaged for sundry other payments, some to fall due at certain dates out of my income some contingent on my coming into my property. Miss Schiffins's brother conducted the negotiation. Wemmick pervaded it throughout, but never appeared in it. The whole business was so cleverly managed, that Herbert had not the least suspicion of my hand being in it. I never shall forget the radiant face with which he came home one afternoon, and told me as a mighty piece of news, of his having fallen in with one cleriker the young merchant's name, and of Clarica's having shown an extraordinary inclination towards him, and of his belief that the opening had come at last. Day by day, as his hopes grew stronger, and his face brighter, he must have thought me a more and more affectionate friend, for I had the greatest difficulty in restraining my tears of triumph when I saw him so happy. At length, the thing being done, and he having that day entered Clarica's house, and he having talked to me for a whole evening in a flush of pleasure and success, I did really cry in good earnest when I went to bed, to think that my expectations had done some good to somebody. A great event in my life, the turning-point of my life, now opens on my view. But before I proceed to narrate it, and before I pass on to all the changes it involved, I must give one chapter to Estella. It is not much to give to the theme that so long filled my heart. End of chapter thirty-seven Chapter thirty-eight of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter thirty-eight if that staid old house near the green at Richmond should ever come to be haunted when I am dead, it will be haunted, surely, by my ghost. Oh, the many, many nights and days through which the unquiet spirit within me haunted that house when Estella lived there! Let my body be where it would. My spirit was always wandering, wandering, wandering about that house. The lady with whom Estella was placed, Mrs. Brandley by name, was a widow, with one daughter several years older than Estella. The mother looked young, and the daughter looked old. The mother's complexion was pink, and the daughter's was yellow. The mother set up for frivolity, and the daughter for theology. They were in what is called a good position, and visited, and were visited, by numbers of people. Little, if any, community of feeling subsisted between them and Estella. But the understanding was established that they were necessary to her, and she was necessary to them. Mrs. Brandley had been a friend of Miss Havisham's before the time of her seclusion. In Mrs. Brandley's house, and out of Mrs. Brandley's house, I suffered every kind and degree of torture that Estella could cause me. The nature of my relations with her, which placed me on terms of familiarity without placing me on terms of favour, conduced to my distraction. She made use of me to tease other admirers, and she turned the very familiarity between herself and me to the account of putting a constant slight on my devotion to her. If I had been her secretary, steward, half-brother, poor relation, if I had been a younger brother of her appointed husband, I could not have seemed to myself further from my hopes when I was nearest to her. The privilege of calling her by her name, and hearing her call me by mine. Became under the circumstances an aggravation of my trials. And while I think it likely that it almost maddened her other lovers, I know too certainly that it almost maddened me. She had admirers without end. No doubt my jealousy made an admirer of every one who went near her, but there were more than enough of them without that. I saw her often at Richmond. I heard of her often in town. And I used often to take her and the Brandleys on the water. There were picnics, fete-days, plays, operas, concerts, parties, all sorts of pleasures through which I pursued her, and they were all miseries to me. I never had one hour's happiness in her society, and yet my mind all round the four-and-twenty hours was harping on the happiness of having her with me unto death. Throughout this part of our intercourse, and it lasted, as will presently be seen, for what I then thought a long time. She habitually reverted to that tone which expressed that our association was forced upon us. There were other times when she would come to a sudden check in this tone, and in all her many tones, and would seem to pity me. "'Pip! Pip!' she said one evening, coming to such a check, and we sat apart at a darkening window of the house in Richmond,—'Will you never take warning?' "'Of what?' "'Of me.' "'Warning not to be attracted by you, do you mean, Estella?' "'Do I mean—if you don't know what I mean, you're blind?' "'I should have replied that love was commonly reputed blind, but for the reason that I always was restrained—and this was not the least of my miseries—by a feeling that it was ungenerous to press myself upon her, when she knew that she could not choose but obey Miss Havisham. My dread always was at this knowledge on her part, laid me under a heavy disadvantage with her pride, and made me the subject of a rebellious struggle in her bosom. At any rate," said I,," I have no warning given me just now, for you wrote to me to come to you this time." That's true," said Estella, with a cold, careless smile that always chilled me. After looking at the twilight without for a little while, she went on to say, "'The time is come around when Miss Havisham wishes to have me for a day at Sartis. "'You are to take me there, and bring me back, if you will. "'She would rather I did not travel alone, and objects to receiving my maid, "'for she has a sensitive horror of being talked of by such people. "'Can you take me?' "'Can I take you, Estella?' "'You can, then. "'The day after to-morrow, if you please. "'You are to pay all charges out of my purse. "'You hear the condition of your going?' And must obey," said I. This was all the preparation I received for that visit, or for others like it. Miss Havisham never wrote to me, nor had I ever so much as seen her handwriting. We went down on the next day but one, and we found her in the room where I had first beheld her. And it is needless to add that there was no change in Sarty's house. She was even more dreadfully fond of Estella than she had been when I last saw them together. I repeat the word advisedly, for there was something positively dreadful in the energy of her looks and embraces. She hung upon Estella's beauty, hung upon her words, hung upon her gestures, and sat mumbling her own trembling fingers while she looked at her, as though she were devouring the beautiful creature she had reared. From Estella she looked at me, with a searching glance that seemed to pry into my heart and probe its wounds. How does she use you, Pip? How does she use you? she asked me again, with her witch like eagerness, even in Estella's hearing. But when we sat by her flickering fire at night, she was most weird. For then, keeping Estella's hand drawn through her arm, and clutched in her own hand, she extorted from her by dint of referring back to what Estella had told her in her regular letters, the names and conditions of the men whom she had fascinated. And as Miss Havisham dwelt upon this role, with the intensity of a mind mortally hurt and diseased, she sat with her other hand on her crutch-stick, and her chin on that, and her one bright eyes glaring at me, a very spectre. I saw in this, wretched though it made me, and bitter the sense of dependence and even of degradation that it awakened, I saw in this that Estella was set to wreak Miss Havisham's revenge on men, and that she was not to be given to me until she had gratified it for a term. I saw in this a reason for her being beforehand assigned to me. Sending her out to attract and torment and do mischief, Miss Havisham sent her with the malicious assurance that she was beyond the reach of all admirers and that all who staked upon that cast were secured to lose. I saw in this that I, too, was tormented by a perversion of ingenuity, even while the prize was reserved for me. I saw in this the reason for my being staved off so long, and the reason for my late guardians declining to commit himself to the formal knowledge of such a scheme. In a word, I saw in this Miss Havisham as I had her then and there before my eyes, and always had had her before my eyes, and I saw in this the distinct shadow of the darkened and unhealthy house in which her life was hidden from the sun. The candles that lighted that room of hers were placed in sconces on the wall. They were high from the ground, and they burnt with the steady dullness of artificial light in air that is seldom renewed. As I looked around at them, and at the pale gloom they made, and at the stopped clock, and at the withered articles of bridal dress upon the table and the ground, and at her own awful figure, with its ghostly reflection thrown large by the fire upon the ceiling and the wall, I saw in everything the construction that my mind had come to, repeated and thrown back to me. My thoughts passed into the great room across the landing, where the table was spread. And I saw it written, as it were, in the falls of the cobwebs from the centerpiece, in the crawlings of the spiders on the cloth, in the tracks of the mice as they betook their little quickened hearts behind the panels, and in the gropings and pausings of the beetles on the floor. It happened on the occasion of this visit that some sharp words arose between Estella and Miss Havisham. It was the first time I had ever seen them opposed. We were seated by the fire as just now described, and Miss Havisham still had Estella's arm drawn through her own, and still clutched Estella's hand in hers, when Estella gradually began to detach herself. She had shown a proud impatience more than once before, and had rather endured that fierce affection than accepted or returned it. "'What?' said Miss Havisham, flashing her eyes upon her. "'Are you tired of me?' Only a little tired of myself, replied Estella, disengaging her arm, and moving to the great chimney-piece, where she stood looking down at the fire. Speak the truth, you ingrate! cried Miss Havisham passionately, striking her stick upon the floor. You are tired of me. Estella looked at her with perfect composure, and again looked down at the fire. Her graceful figure and her beautiful face expressed a self-possessed indifference to the wild heat of the other, that was almost cruel. "'You stock and stone!' exclaimed Miss Havisham. "'You cold, cold heart!' "'What?' said Estella, preserving her attitude of indifference, as she leaned against the great chimney-piece, and only moving her eyes. "'Do you reproach me for being cold?' "'You! "'Are you not?' was the fierce retort. "'You should know,' said Estella. "'I am what you have made me. "'Take all the praise. "'Take all the blame. "'Take all the success. "'Take all the failure. "'In short, take me.' "'Oh, look at her! "'Look at her!' "'cried Miss Havisham bitterly. "'Look at her! "'So hard and thankless "'on the hearth where she was reared!' where I took her into this wretched breast when it was first bleeding from its stabs, and where I have lavished years of tenderness upon her. At least I was no party to the compact, said Estella, for if I could walk and speak when it was made, it was as much as I could do. But what would you have? You have been very good to me, and I owe everything to you. What would you have? Love, replied the other. "'You have it?' "'I have not,' said Miss Havisham. "'Mother by adoption,' retorted Estella, never departing from the easy grace of her attitude, never raising her voice as the other did, never yielding either to anger or tenderness. "'Mother by adoption, I have said that I owe everything to you. All I possess is freely yours. All that you have given me is at your command to have again.' "'Beyond that, I have nothing. "'And if you ask me to give you what you never gave me, "'my gratitude and duty cannot do impossibilities.' "'Did I never give her love?' "'cried Miss Havisham, turning wildly to me. "'Did I never give her a burning love, "'inseparable from jealousy at all times, "'and from sharp pain, while she speaks thus to me? "'Let her call me mad, let her call me mad!' "'Why should I call you mad?' returned Estella. "'I, of all people? Does any one live who knows what set purpose you have, half as well as I do? Does any one live who knows what a steady memory you have, half as well as I do? I, who have sat on this same hearth, on this little stool that is even now beside you there, learning your lessons, and looking up into your face, when your face was strange and frightened me?' "'Soon forgotten!' moaned Miss Havisham. "'Times! soon forgotten!' "'No, not forgotten,' retorted Estella. "'Not forgotten, but treasured up in my memory. "'When have you found me false to your teaching? "'When have you found me unmindful of your lessons? "'When have you found me giving admission here?' "'She touched her bosom with her hand. "'To anything that you excluded?' "'Be just to me.' "'So proud! "'So proud!' moaned Miss Havisham, pushing away her grey hair with both her hands. "'Who taught me to be proud?' returned Estella. "'Who praised me when I learnt my lesson?' "'So hard! "'So hard!' moaned Miss Havisham, with her former action. "'Who taught me to be hard?' returned Estella. "'Who praised me when I learnt my lesson?' But to be proud and hard to me!" Miss Havisham quite shrieked, as she stretched out her arms. "'Estella! Estella! Estella! To be proud and hard to me!' Estella looked at her for a moment, with a kind of calm wonder, but was not otherwise disturbed. When the moment was past, she looked down at the fire again. "'I cannot think. "'said Estella, raising her eyes after a silence. "'Why you should be so unreasonable "'when I come to see you after a separation. "'I have never forgotten your wrongs and their causes. "'I have never been unfaithful to you or your schooling. "'I have never shown any weakness "'that I can charge myself with.' "'Would it be weakness to return my love?' "'exclaimed Miss Havisham. "'But yes, yes, she would call it so.' "'I begin to think—' said Estella, in a musing way, after another moment of calm wonder, that I almost understand how this comes about. If you had brought up your adopted daughter wholly in the dark confinement of these rooms, and had never let her know that there was such a thing as the daylight, of which she had never once seen your face, if you had done that, and then, for a purpose, had wanted her to understand the daylight, and know all about it, you would have been disappointed and angry. Miss Havisham, with her head in her hands, sat making a low moaning, and swaying herself on her chair, but gave no answer. Or, said Estella, which is a nearer case, if you had taught her, from the dawn of her intelligence, with your utmost energy and might, that there was such a thing as daylight, but that it was made to be her enemy, and destroyer, and she must always turn against it, for it had blighted you, and would else blight her. If you had done this, and then for a purpose had wanted her to take naturally to the daylight, and she could not do it, you would have been disappointed and angry?" Miss Havisham sat listening, or it seemed so, for I could not see her face, but still made no answer. "'So,' said Estella, I must be taken as I have been made. The success is not mine. The failure is not mine, but the two together make me Miss Havisham had settled down. I hardly knew how upon the floor, among the faded bridal relics with which it was strewn, I took advantage of the moment I had sought one from the first to leave the room after beseeching Estella's attention to her with a movement of my hand when I left. Estella was yet standing by the great chimney-piece, just as she had stood throughout. Miss Havisham's gray hair was all adrift upon the ground among the other bridal wrecks, and was a miserable sight to see. It was with a depressed heart that I walked into the starlight for an hour and more, about the courtyard, and about the brewery, and about the ruined garden. When I at last took courage to return to the room, I found Estella sitting at Miss Havisham's knee taking up some stitches in one of those old articles of dress that were dropping to pieces, and of which I have often been reminded since, by the faded tatters of old banners that I have seen hanging up in cathedrals. Afterwards Estella and I played at cards, as of yore, only we were skilful now, and played French games, and so the evening wore away, and I went to bed. I lay in that separate building across the courtyard. It was the first time I had ever lain down to rest in Sarty's house, and sleep refused to come near me. A thousand Miss Havishams haunted me. She was on this side of my pillow, on that, at the head of the bed, at the foot, behind the half-open door of the dressing-room, in the dressing-room, in the room overhead, in the room beneath, everywhere. At last, when the night was slow to creep on towards two o'clock. I felt that I absolutely could no longer bear the place as a place to lie down in, and that I must get up. I therefore got up, and put on my clothes, and went out across the yard into the long stone passage, designing to gain the outer courtyard, and walk there for the relief of my mind. But I was no sooner in the passage than I extinguished my candle, for I saw Miss Havisham was going along it in a ghostly manner, making a low cry. I followed her at a distance, and saw her go up the staircase. She carried a bare candle in her hand, which she had probably taken from one of the sconces in her own room, and was a most unearthly object by its light. Standing at the bottom of the staircase, I felt the mildewed air of the feast-chamber, without seeing her open the door, and I heard her walking there, and so across into her own room, and so across again into that, never ceasing the low cry. After a time, I tried, in the dark, both to get out and to go back, but I could do neither, until some streaks of day strayed in, and showed me where to lay my hands. During the whole interval, whenever I went to the bottom of the staircase, I heard her footstep, saw her light pass above, and heard her ceaseless, low cry. Before we left next day, there was no revival of the difference between her and Estella nor was it ever revived, on any similar occasion. And there were four similar occasions, to the best of my remembrance. Nor did Miss Havisham's manner towards Estella in any wise change, except that I believed it to have something like fear infused among its former characteristics. It is impossible to turn this leaf of my life, without putting Bentley Drummle's name upon it, or I would, very gladly. On a certain occasion, when the Finches were assembled in force, and when good feeling was being promoted in the usual manner by nobody's agreeing with anybody else, the presiding Finch called the grove to order, forasmuch as Mr. Drummle had not yet toasted a lady, which, according to the solemn constitution of the society, it was the brute's turn to do that day. I thought I saw him leer in an ugly way at me, while the decanters were going round, But as there was no love lost between us, that might easily be. What was my indignant surprise, when he called upon the company to pledge him to Estella? "'Estella who?' said I. "'Never you mind,' retorted Drummle. "'Estella of where?' said I. "'You are bound to say of where?' Which he was, as a finch. "'Of Richmond, gentlemen said Drummle, putting me out of the question. And a peerless beauty!" "'Much he knew about peerless beauties, a mean miserable idiot!' I whispered Herbert. "'I know that lady,' said Herbert, across the table, when the toast had been honoured. "'Do you?' said Drummle. And so do I,' I added, with a scarlet face. "'Do you?' said Drummle. "'Oh, Lord! This was the only retort, except glass or crockery, that the heavy creature was capable of making. But I became as highly incensed by it, as if it had been barbed with wit, and I immediately rose in my place, and said that I could not but regard it as being like the Honorable Finch's impudence to come down to that grove—we always talked about coming down to that grove as a neat parliamentary turn of expression—down to that grove, proposing a lady of whom he knew nothing. Mr. Drummle upon this, starting up, demanded what I meant by that, whereupon I made him the extreme reply that I believed he knew where I was to be found. Whether it was possible in a Christian country to get on without blood, after this, was the question on which the finches were divided. The debate upon it grew so lively, indeed, that at least six more honorable members told six more, during the discussion, that they believed they knew where they were to be found. However, it was decided at last, the grove being a court of honor, that if Mr. Drummle would bring never so slight a certificate from the lady, importing that he had the honor of her acquaintance, Mr. Pip must express his regret as a gentleman and a finch for having been betrayed into a warmth witch. Next day was appointed for the production, lest our honor should take cold from delay, and next day drummle appeared with a polite little avowal in estella's hand that she had had the honor of dancing with him several times this left me no course but to regret that i had been betrayed into a warmth which, and on the whole to repudiate as untenable the idea that i was to be found anywhere drummle and i then sat snorting at one another for an hour while the grove engaged in indiscriminate contradiction and finally the promotion of good feeling was declared to have gone ahead at an amazing rate. I tell this lightly, but it was no light thing to me, for I cannot adequately express what pain it gave me to think that Estella should show any favor to a contemptible, clumsy, sulky booby so very far below the average. To the present moment I believe it to have been referable to some pure fire of generosity and disinterestedness in my love for her, that I could not endure the thought of her stooping to that hound. No doubt I should have been miserable, whomsoever she had favoured, but a worthier object would have caused me a different kind and degree of distress. It was easy for me to find out, and I did soon find out, that Drummle had begun to follow her closely, and that she allowed him to do it. A little while, and he was always in pursuit of her and he and I crossed one another every day. He held on, in a dull, persistent way, and Estella held him on, now with encouragement, now with discouragement, now almost flattering him, now openly despising him, now knowing him very well, now scarcely remembering who he was. The Spider, as Mr. Jaggers had called him, was used to lying in wait, however, and had the patience of his tribe. Added to that, he had a blockhead confidence in his money and in his family greatness, which sometimes did him good service, almost taking the place of concentration and determined purpose. So the spider doggedly watching Estella outwatched many brighter insects, and would often uncoil himself and drop at the right nick of time. At a certain assembly ball at Richmond, there used to be assembly balls at most places then, where Estella had outshone all other beauties, this blundering drummle so hung about her, and with so much toleration on her part, that I resolved to speak to her concerning him. I took the next opportunity, which was when she was waiting for Mrs. Brandley to take her home, and was sitting apart among some flowers, ready to go. I was with her, for I almost always accompanied them to and from such places. Are you tired, Estella? "'Rather, Pip.' "'You should be.' "'Say, rather, I should not be, for I have my letter to Sartis house to write before I go to sleep.' "'Recounting to-night's triumph,' said I. "'Surely a very poor one, Estella.' "'What do you mean?' "'I didn't know there had been any.' "'Estella,' said I, "'do look at that fellow in the corner yonder, who is looking over here at us.' "'Why should I look at him?' "'returned Estella, with her eyes on me instead. "'What is there in that fellow in the corner yonder, to use your words, that I need look at?' "'Indeed, that is the very question I want to ask you,' said I, "'for he has been hovering about you all night.' "'Moths, and all sorts of ugly creatures,' replied Estella, with a glance towards him. "'Hover about a lighted candle. Can the candle help it?' "'No,' I returned. But cannot the Estella help it?" "'Well,' said she, laughing, after a moment, "'perhaps, yes, anything you like.' "'But, Estella, do hear me speak. It makes me wretched that you should encourage a man so generally despised as Drommel. You know he is despised.' "'Well,' said she, "'you know he is as ungainly within as without. A deficient, ill-tempered. Lowering, stupid fellow. "'Well,' said she, "'you know he has nothing to recommend him but money, and a ridiculous roll of addle-headed predecessors, now don't you?' "'Well,' said she again, and each time she said it, she opened her lovely eyes the wider. To overcome the difficulty of getting past that monosyllable, I took it from her, and said, repeating it with emphasis, "'Well?' Then that is why it makes me wretched. Now if I could have believed that she favoured Drummle with any idea of making me, me, wretched, I should have been in better heart about it. But in that habitual way of hers she put me so entirely out of the question that I could believe nothing of the kind. "'Pip,' said Estella, casting a glance over the room, "'don't be foolish about its effect on you. It may have its effect on others.' and may be meant to have. It's not worth discussing." "'Yes, it is,' said I, because I cannot bear that people should say she throws away her graces and attractions on a mere boor, the lowest in the crowd." "'I can bear it,' said Estella. "'Oh! don't be so proud, Estella, and so inflexible!' "'Calls me proud and inflexible in this breath,' said Estella, opening her hands, and in his last breath reproached me for stooping to a boar. "'There is no doubt you do,' said I, something hurriedly, "'for I have seen you give him looks, and smiles as very night, such as you never give to me.' "'Do you want me, then,' said Estella, turning suddenly, with a fixed and serious, if not angry, look, "'to deceive and entrap you?' "'Do you deceive and entrap him, Estella?' "'Yes, and many others.' All of them but you. Here is Mrs. Brandley. I'll say no more." And now that I have given the one chapter to the theme that so filled my heart, and so often made it ache and ache again, I pass on, unhindered, to the event that had impended over me longer yet—the event that had begun to be prepared for, before I knew that the world held Estella and in the days when her baby intelligence was receiving its first distortions from Miss Havisham's wasting hands. In the eastern story, the heavy slab that was to fall on the bed of state, in the flush of conquest, was slowly wrought out of the quarry. The tunnel for the rope to hold it in its place was slowly carried through the leagues of rock. The slab was slowly raised and fitted in the roof. The rope was rove to it and slowly taken through the miles of hollow to the great iron ring. All being made ready with much labor, and the hour come, the sultan was aroused in the dead of the night, and the sharpened axe that was to sever the rope from the great iron ring was put into his hand, and he struck with it, and the rope parted and rushed away, and the ceiling fell. So, in my case, all the work, near and afar that tended to the end had been accomplished, and in an instant the blow was struck, and the roof of my stronghold dropped upon me. End of chapter 38